WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 389. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 29th of August, 2019. In today's episode, we have news in aviation and our commentary about it, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, 42nd Boyd, or two-thirds of a minute Boyd. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 389 is ready for pushback. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where, as I just mentioned, we talk about aviation news and we talk about uh, your feedback and answer questions if we can. And I thought maybe, just maybe, it might be a good time. We have a lot of new listeners, Nick. Might be a time for us to kind of talk about what this show really is all about. And it is somewhat serious we like to talk about serious things like aircraft accidents incidents and that sort of thing we also answer serious questions that we have from people uh, giving advice to people seeking it uh, wanting to get into uh, a job related uh, or aviation related job that sort of thing and we also try to entertain and when when this thing started out uh, 10 years ago when it was just me um you know i was answering questions mostly kind of a airline pilot answer man sort of thing and also talking about news really wasn't much of a community back then uh that was just me and just a handful of people listening to the show and uh, over time uh, the audience grew and the show got more popular and then at a certain point about 2015 started having people join me on the show as co-hosts or then we call it our crew and this community that has just grown uh, by leaps and bounds since that point, you know, nothing I could ever envision. Uh, it kind of took over this whole thing, which is great. And really now the show is here just to kind of keep this community together. And part of being a community is communicating. This is a, a podcasting, I think, is a unique thing that allows for us to have a two-way communication. It's not a radio show. It's not you know something that you just turn on and listen to and get spoken to or lectured or whatever. It's, it's a kind of experience that the community can communicate to us and we communicate with the community. And because of that, um, it has, um, you know, it can be kind of serious and it can be kind of casual and, how, you know, we have fun sometimes. So uh, the beginning part of the show as you will see and hear, is that point where we kind of talk about community-related things, what the crew has been up to since the last show. We do this every week. And uh, what also is going on in our larger community, APG community and the aviation podcasting community, which is even a bigger group of people out there. 
And uh, we talk about meetups that we have uh, between shows, and we always have a, a big meetup every year. Uh, the last one um, being Oshkosh in July, which was just a blast, an Osh blast. And uh, so that's why we spend um, a considerable amount of time every show at the beginning discussing what's happening with the individual hosts and what's happening with the community. And I think that's what makes a podcast special, it makes it different from a TV program or a radio show. So... If, however, you're one of those who really doesn't want to hear any of this kind of stuff at the beginning of the show, I've tried to make it really easy for you. So if you use um, any kind of a podcasting client so software, if you're listening to us on audio only, I take the time to actually put time codes for uh, where we start talking about news items and when we start talking about feedback items. And if you're watching the video, I do put... Uh, the time that we actually start recording the show because um, we start broadcasting the video before we actually start recording the show. So it may that may be anywhere from five to ten minutes of pre-show banter or sometimes it's more like a half an hour or more. Uh, but uh, I, after the fact, I go back in and say, this is where we're starting the show. So for those of you watching the video, you can just click on that thing and boom, that's where we started uh, playing the uh, WAPG station ID sounder. And that's the indication that we're starting the show. Now, if you're out there uh, watching the video right now or someone who exclusively watches the video and you want to help out, um, you can kind of do what I do and kind of put when we start the first news item and when we start the first feedback item. And if you send me that information or make it a comment in the video, I can always put it in the description. So those of you who watch the video version only will have uh, an idea where you can you know, fast forward to, which is one of the beauty, uh, the beautiful things about a podcast is that or our YouTube video, you can fast forward to wherever you want to go. So just wanted to make sure everybody understood what this is all about. We try to make it um, fun, entertaining, and also, um, what, instructional, um, informational, and what other word would, would be a good descriptor, uh, Nick? Uh, madness, total madness. Total madness. Yes, we do well with that. Okay, well. But I'm glad you explained that because I've been wondering uh, all about that for years. <laughs> Nick joined us in 2016 officially, uh, the beginning portion of 2016, although he was uh, had made uh, little um, cameo appearances on the show before that, I guess, uh, the fall of 2015. But you know what I should do? I should probably introduce Captain Nick. He is in his home in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London. As we said, Captain Nick. Hey, and uh, looking forward to a great show, Jeff. Yeah, I got a little bit of admin uh, prior to us kicking off. Not too much today. Not that much has happened, but uh, looking forward to a good show. I am as well. So what have you been up to, sir, since our last episode? Well, I have uh, done a couple of photo shoots, uh, so that's been keeping me busy. I've also been down to the local Audi dealer to uh, do a few test drives on a new car, Ooh. thinking of uh, picking up a new motor. Mm -hmm. uh, my old one is my old airport car, and you can imagine what... Uh, driving it to the airport uh, and back, and leaving it parked up in the uh, in the car uh, car park under the approach uh, into Heathrow for 
all those uh, months upon months, it, it hasn't suffered. <laughs> hasn't suffered very well. Uh, under or it has all that. suffered. <laughs> yeah, it has suffered. Yeah. It, it, uh, so anyway, so I think I need a new one. Uh, anyway, um, so that's that's really been it. Uh, and of course, doing plain tales. And I have a couple of uh, Royal Aeronautical Society lectures coming up. So I uh, got one. Uh, let me quickly pull up my diary just in case anyone is in these areas. I am lecturing at the 29th. So it's got to be. There we go. Uh, oh, first thing is the Frankfurt meetup. Uh, that's uh, okay. That's organised by um, our lovely friend uh, Marcus, uh, who uh, does the Omega Tau uh, podcast. Uh, but uh, he has invited uh, uh, us uh, airline pilot guy representatives. Uh, so I'm the closest. So I'm definitely going, and I gather Jeff, you're going to try and get over um, to come to a meetup in Frankfurt. On the 21st of uh, September, it's a Saturday, we're going to uh, have uh, Stefan there and Ollie. Uh, so uh, the Come Fly With Us uh, podcast is also being represented. You know, I've they're tried to start- listen to their show, and I don't understand a word they're saying. <laughs> what language is it in? <laughs> I think it's German. Yeah, that might be a problem. Yeah. Um, so uh, on Saturday, we're going to have a... Uh, a tour of uh, Frankfurt Airport, which for uh, an airline pilot, uh, it sounds a bit like a busman's holiday, but I'm sure there are aspects of Frankfurt Airport that will uh, interest us. Uh, The meetup itself is starting at uh, 6.30, and it's at, uh, oh, God, couldn't you find somewhere that was a bit easier to pronounce, Marcus? (laughs) It's uh, Bembelsch. Uh, B-E-M-B-E-L-S-C-H-E. I think it's a hotel there, bembelsch.com. And uh, Marcus asks anyone who's thinking of attending, uh, of registering, please. So please go to, uh, you can find the the little advert uh, on the social meds, or better still, go to Marcus's uh, website. He'll probably have something there. But uh, he's put a little... um, uh, website address uh, to a register. So https colon forward slash forward slash bit.ly forward slash two h-e-i-t-e-y. Uh, so you can type that in or better still go and find the actual link on uh, Marcus's website. I'm sure that'll be there. But anyway, that's happening on the 21st. Um, so I'll be flying in that morning and leaving on the Sunday. Uh, in Coventry, I am lecturing at the Royal Aeronautical Society at Coventry University on the 25th of September. Uh, that's a Wednesday. I'm lecturing again at, uh, where's that one? Uh, that says RF Cosford. That can't be right. Is it just that's me or probably- does it, it seems like you're busier now that you're retired than you were yeah, before you yeah, retired? Yeah, I am a bit. Yeah, I am a bit. I think that that one must be a leftover from the previous year. Um, I'm lecturing again at, uh, uh, where did you go? Come back. Come back. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, there we go. Boscombe Down. Uh, Royal Air Force Boscombe Down. That may not be easy for people who aren't members of the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society branch at Boscombe Down to get to because it's on the Air Force Base. So 
Uh, perhaps that's not an ideal one. But anyway, lots coming up. I've got to do lectures for that uh, and get all those prepped. Uh, and uh, really, that's kind of about it. But looking forward to meeting a lot of our listeners uh, all around uh, Europe and uh, the UK. And, of course, talking to some lovely aviation-minded people in the near future. What about the lawn bowling scene? How's that? How did that uh, pan out? Uh, well, it's kind of winding up. The season's finishing now. Um, competitions all year round. Uh, we came top of the league. Uh, and we're in Division One of the league, so we're top of the top. Uh, which was brilliant. Uh, my personal uh, efforts, I ended up in the final of the handicap uh, singles. Sadly, lost to a very good player, but I had to give him several shots, and I couldn't quite uh, get over the finishing line before he did. But I did win, uh, along with my uh, fine partner, uh, Colin, the uh, pairs, the invitation pairs, so at least I've got a bit of silver to pick up on the presentation night, so that'll be great. Very good, very good. Well, guess what? I was just looking down, and I noticed somebody has joined us, and so that means I should play her intro music from her lakeside studio in South Carolina. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff and Captain Nick. It's good to see you both this afternoon. Glad I was able to make it home a little sooner than anticipated. Hopefully the audio is working. The uh, computer booted right up. No issues there. So all good to go. Excellent. So Steph... We were talking before we started recording that we might have to do a kind of almost like a two-parter uh, because we thought that you were going to get home a little bit later today, and we, we thought we might have to have an intermission or something. But looks like you were able to get home earlier than you thought you were going to. Yeah, um, I did. So I'm here. We'll uh, go ahead and get started with the show. So happy to be able to join both of you. We're glad that you're here with us. And what has been going on with you since our last um, recording, which was what, about uh week well friday i think is when we last friday. recorded yeah not a whole lot to be honest um yeah that was the day i had all those thunderstorms here um made it through that just fine the weekend was quiet and uneventful and didn't really do a whole lot of anything other than just get caught up on stuff around the house and just been a regular work week so sorry nothing real interesting or crazy to speak of here. Hey, you know, sometimes it's nice just to have a nice, not a lot going on kind In, of indeed. week. Yeah, so take it. that uh, last recording, uh, there was a pretty severe thunderstorm going on. Uh, <laughs> yes. Was there any damage outside from that? No, not at my place. Not okay. around my house. I didn't see anything. A um, couple of big tree branches down, but nothing that damaged anything. Very good. Very good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we uh, kind of explaining what we do here on on the uh, Airline Pilot Guy show, the APG, is we kind of talk about what each of us have been doing since the previous show. And we also talk about things happening in our community. And one of our, actually two of our uh, big APG community members are Micah, our main man Micah, and Fred Sampson. And sounds like Fred visited Micah in Portland, Maine, and we have some audio from that. So let's go ahead and play it. Okay, it's your main man, Micah, here. And um, I got to be a little bit quiet. Um, We all know that 
Fred Sampson works for some government agency and has a license to kill. Well, he's here visiting me. Now, if you don't hear from me, um, it's going to look like an accident. But, uh, you know, just check things out and see if you can solve the issue. But, oh, Fred, you just got back from the buffet. So nice to have you up here in Maine. Hey, Micah, what's going on? I can't believe that two weeks in a row I've been blessed to have two incredible visitors come and see me. And you and I are here together in Falmouth, Maine at Ricetta's Pizza having a pizza buffet and something that you ordered off the menu that was just incredible. Yeah, we saw that coming in. This is called Lobster Poutine, and it's basically the best of Quebec and the best of Maine in one single dish. I may never have to eat anything else. I, this, is, this is absolutely fantastic. And, Micah, it was great to see you. We're trying to make this a destination, so... There'll probably be somebody here next week visiting you and, and having a great meal with you, just like Steph and I did. So awesome, and, and thanks for being such a good host. Well, it's great to see you, but can you let us know here on APG what's bringing you to Maine? I mean, other than, well, I don't know, you didn't, other than what we think. I, I know this is going to sound absolutely unbelievable, and I, 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 no one's going to believe me, but I am on vacation for a few days, and so I'm going to take some time, and I'm going to go to a lakeside resort and just relax for a couple of days. I know, right? I, no one's going to believe me, but that's exactly what's going on. You know, it's been a busy summer, and the weather here is perfect. This is the, uh, the northeast at its best, so I'm just going to sit by a lake and relax. Fred, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming by. <laughs> Always good, Mike. I'll see you soon. Okay, he just went back to the buffet to pick up some more pizza, but remember, if you don't hear from me, you'll know why. For the airline pilot guy, maybe for the last time, this is your main man, Micah. Good luck, Micah. Has yeah, anyone that heard international from him? man of mystery. I want to know why he goes to these places and goes on holiday carrying a sniper rifle. It's, seems oh, a little seems, strange. Right? Seems a little odd to me. Yeah. That's yeah. not normal. But he is American. Nah. No, he's not, actually. He's is Canadian. Wait, he's Canadian. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that makes it even uh, more strange, doesn't it? Well, isn't, uh, doesn't a Canadian sniper have the world's longest... Uh, distance for a confirmed kill hmm. of a feeling that might be right i don't Sorry. know that sounds reasonable um but hey the good news is that as we're recording this show live in our live chat room or live audience i do see at least somebody who says that their main man micah it could actually be fred could mimicking be. micah's uh identity the world may never be. know <laughs> Anyway, so thanks, uh, Micah, for recording that, and sounds like you all had a great time in Lobster Portland. poutine? That sounds Lobster incredible. Poutine. Wow. Yum. Very rich. Making my stomach kind of growl. Okay, so that is all I see in my intro folder, except for something else that we have to wait for until Dana gets back. So with that, I think now would be a good time for us to get on with the news. Stand by for news. And we're going to go ahead and start with an update on something that we talked about not quite two weeks ago. Uh, the uh, NASCAR 
retired NASCAR driver, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr., was involved in that private uh, jet, a citation, um, forgot which one, Latitude, I believe, uh, crash at Elizabethton, Tennessee. And um, a little bit of an update on the preliminary NTSB report, this from NBC News. Tonight, federal investigators say a mechanical malfunction contributed to last week's fiery plane crash in Tennessee. NASCAR legend Dale Earnhardt Jr., his wife Amy, one-year-old daughter Isla, their family dog, and two pilots survived. According to the NTSB's new preliminary report, the right main landing gear collapsed and the outboard section of the right wing contacted the runway shortly after the third touchdown. The airplane basically bounced at least twice uh, before coming down hard on the right main landing gear. After the plane came to a stop on the edge of a highway, the NTSB report credits the flight crew with evacuating the passengers. There's fire all over the place. It crashed through the fence and everything. In this dramatic video, you can see a man get out of the plane first. He's then handed a small child. Other adults and a dog follow. On Twitter this week, Earnhardt Jr. wrote in part, We are truly blessed that all on board escaped. Later adding, he plans to race again next week. Gabe Gutierrez, NBC News. Okay, so we, I think we kind of covered that. The fact that uh, witnesses... And data from the flight data recorder showed that the airplane actually bounced, well, two times and then the third time coming down and, and basically breaking the airplane. And that's what caused the, uh, or one of the things that caused the excursion. Um, but um, so I looked and didn't see any updates on that. So I guess they're still in the midst of their investigation to try to determine why that occurred. But I. Uh, I wanted to see, now I know that uh, Dale Jr. does a podcast, it's called the Dale Jr. Download, and I was wondering if he was going to uh, like continue to podcast, or if, if he did, if he was going to say anything on the show itself. And just a couple of days after this accident in Tennessee, um, their normally scheduled podcast um, they, they put out. Uh, but he recorded something at the front of it before the actual show began. So let me uh, let you take a listen to that. Hey, everybody, it's Dale Jr. Um, we pre-recorded this podcast a few days ago with our guest, William Byron. And obviously since then, my family and I were involved in an awful accident. Just wanted to let everybody know that, um, you know, we're so thankful for all the prayers and Phone calls and everything everybody did over the last several days has really helped lift us up. Yeah. Yep. And it's uh, Alice here trying to help me um, send this message to you. But we're just so appreciative of, you know, the quick decisions by our pilots and the emergency personnel, law enforcement. Everyone at the hospital was amazing. Just was, uh, it was so fast how quickly they responded and, and took care of us. We're in incredible hands. And um, there's, a, you know, there's an investigation going on, so we weren't, we're not gonna comment or speculate about what happened or discuss that with anybody going forward. We're just trying to process what we went through and we appreciate all the privacy that we've been extended to do that on our own time. It's been a very difficult few days for everybody, but me and my wife and our family just are trying our best to get back to normal 
as soon as possible. And uh, we just really appreciate all the support. It's just meant a lot to us and want you to know that. So enjoy the podcast and uh, we'll be seeing you soon. All right. So I thought it was kind of uh, nice that he took the time to actually address his audience, his community, and let everybody know that he was okay. I was kind of hoping that we'd hear a little bit more (laughs) detail about what he experienced, but I'm sure that the FAA and the NTSB probably said, uh, nope, don't say a thing. In fact, his lawyers probably said, don't say anything at all about this crash or the investigation. But um, it's kind of nice to be able to hear from somebody directly and personally about something that they've been involved in. And, you know, that accident could have definitely gone the other way. It could have been a, a catastrophe, a tragedy. Uh, he and his wife and his small child could have perished in that accident. And uh, thankfully, nobody, uh, nobody, it was just minor injuries, I believe, uh, was the worst of it. So um, just thought it was kind of interesting to hear everything from his perspective. Uh, how uh, famous is this chap in the States, Jeff? Is he a well, very, well-known figure? Very, pretty, yes. very famous. Uh, well, as, you know, it's, he's a, a driver, a, a race car driver uh, in NASCAR. His father was very famous. Yes. Uh, his, his dad was uh, Dale Hart, Earnhardt. And he, uh, his dad passed away. Uh, what year was that? Like uh, right around 2000. the... 2000 or three or earlier like, than that. Um, yeah, maybe 15, 20 years ago, yeah, something let me like that. Uh, was uh, racing at Daytona International um, Speedway and was involved in an accident. It really didn't look that bad, but 2001. Um, 2001. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, he hit the wall, uh, did not have a safer barrier uh, installed to absorb the impact. And there also didn't have one of these, I think, what do they call it? What do they call that? A Hans device or something like that? Where, yeah, the around the back of the neck and the helmet from the seat, correct? Right. That yeah. kind of kind of keeps. So what happened is the impact caused with the helmet and everything else to go forward and it snapped his head forward so quickly it snapped his um, his neck basically and mm-hmm. died oh, no. okay. um, instantly. Yeah. That was his dad. Um, and then Dale Jr., I mean, he's been one of the most popular for those who follow racing. Uh, especially NASCAR, uh, he's always voted like the most popular driver in NASCAR. It has for many, many years. And he retired, I believe, a couple of years ago. Um, oh, probably two years ago. Yeah. Last year, two years ago. Still, okay, still so, uh, a, mu- a much loved sportsman. Yes. Especially Excellent. in the area I live in. They're from this area, um, up the road in cool. Kannapolis. Very <laughs> cool. And uh, he also is still Thanks. involved in NASCAR as an announcer for mm-hmm. uh, one of the um, – Outlets and is it NBC or I Fox? NBC. I think it's NBC. But yes. anyway, uh, doesn't matter. And also, he also does that uh, Dale Junior download, and I think a couple of other podcasts. But uh, so he's staying active in the motorsport community. I think he actually still races. One of the things that I, one of his tweets that I read said that he was still planning on racing this the following weekend after the accident. So I guess he must do mm-hmm. some other type of racing, not the. Uh, not the cup racing for NASCAR anymore, but sure. Yeah. I haven't kept up with all that, but I haven't either. I believe it. Yep. I've been um, focusing mostly on formula one in the last couple of years. So I haven't really watched a NASCAR race in a little bit. And uh, anyway, so there you have it. An update uh, again, nothing real, um, nothing new when it comes to what we know about 
that accident up in uh, Elizabethton, uh, Tennessee. So hopefully we'll learn something about that soon. And continuing on, this was an odd one, uh, item A. Mm-hmm. Um, from Half Moon Bay, that's uh, basically the San Francisco area and a little bit south of there, I guess south um, west of uh, the San Francisco Peninsula. Uh, you go down the coastline in the um, Half Moon Bay area. Um, the article from uh, the Mercury Mercury News, uh, two people escaped unscathed early Tuesday evening when their single-engine aircraft crashed into the ocean near Half Moon Bay. The 1979 Beechcraft A36 Bonanza went down under unknown circumstances about 5.50 p.m., said FAA spokesman Ian Greger. Two people on board got out before the aircraft sank. Uh, The crash was reported to the U.S. Coast Guard just after 6 p.m. And uh, another plane was in the area at the time. The pilot circled the crash site located about eight nautical miles west of Pillar Point Harbor, reported seeing a man and a woman bobbing in the ocean. Neither of them appeared to be wearing life jackets. Now, a little bit more to the story is that 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 actual that airplane that basically called in this crash was actually a planned thing. It was another couple uh, who were out there flying along with or near the um, the two who were involved in the uh, Bonanza A36 crash. Apparently, they had some kind of engine issue and ended up ditching the airplane into the ocean. And the airplane that was circling above actually has video, really good video, showing the actual ditching of the Bonanza into the water. And then the guy that and his passenger uh, that were in the Bonanza in the water uh, were taking video uh, constantly, uh, like selfie video. Yeah, after they get out of the plane in the water, they're holding the phone up, right? taking video. Yeah. And the reason I think a lot of people were wondering, so a lot of people are going, uh, something doesn't sound quite kosher. With yeah. This. Well, maybe a little background on yeah. David Lush. So this guy is, um, I think, just kind of famous through his own Instagram stuff as much as as far as i know um he owns a, a company or something I think. yeah he does and I, I actually don't know much about that if you want to fill in on that in a little bit but he um kind of a thrill seeker he goes out and does some stunt type stuff for attention primarily and it's um been a little controversial to say the least in the past i think most recently he was um riding snowmobiles in the the rocky mountains in the summer so through these wilderness areas that are kind of protected, although there was no snow at the time. And uh, that's not allowed because you can definitely <laughs> damage the uh, the protected areas. Yeah. Um, Is it, would something that damage about, a snowmobile too? I've never heard of snowmobiling with no I snow. I can't imagine it's good for the snowmobile. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you wanted to use it again for real, I probably wouldn't do it. Um, there was an incident where he was ticketed for harassment of wildlife after chasing a moose while trying to take video. He was arrested back in 2014 on suspicion of arson after burning shopping carts while producing video. So kind of some interesting controversial videos that he's done for his social media stuff in the past. Yeah. So you could kind of see why maybe some people thought, mm, I'm wondering And what's... they just happened to be filming this flight at the time that this happened Almost and they had video. too perfect. So... Who knows where, I mean, we're not saying 
Well, so he, I'm not saying anything. So he did, so he started. Uh, it's to, a pretty risky thing, though, ditching an airplane. I mean, uh, yeah. he must if if he was doing it deliberately. I'm thinking, uh, you're mad. Yeah. So it might be one of those situations where he's done this sort of thing so many times as like the boy crawl, calling wolf, crying wolf, I guess is the right way to say that, where people yeah. go, okay, well, this must be another one of his stunts. But he says it's not a stunt. Uh, he said that he bought this airplane three months ago for more than $200,000 and spent about $40,000 for upgrades. He said that Tuesday's flight was its first real trip. Uh, he is the... Um, uh, the founder of Denver-based outerwear company Vertica, I guess that's mm -hmm. the way you pronounce yep. that. And uh, he said that uh, he was siphoning particulate matter out of the gas, but doesn't think he got all of it. I wonder if that means like he was using the something. and Yeah, when he was so, you know, when you sump the fuel, it's yeah. supposed to be clear and not have contaminants or water. Right. So he, yeah. yeah, he's, you know, he's defending himself saying, no, this is not a stunt. Um, this was something that we had planned to do. The guy was in the other airplane filming us, you know, flying around just off the San Francisco coastline to get some, you know, good footage for some kind of an ad campaign or something. Uh, yeah. And, he, I mean, the way he described it, he just wanted video of his first time out really flying the right. airplane, you well, know, kind sense. of dramatic scenery along the San Francisco Bay area. And that all makes sense. Yeah. But. And Logan in the chat room is uh, mentioning that. Uh, oh, well, what he was saying is Logan in the chat room is I'm mentioning sorry. <laughs> that he was getting a lot of uh, heat because there was no flotation equipment on board. I, I did not want sorry. to hear Nick anymore. <laughs> so, he so, just wanted to put uh, you in that I have this, position. I have this trackpad here that is in front of the other trackpad, and my palm hit it. And guess what? The cursor on the machine uh just happened yeah, to be yeah. right we, on we your believe you. <laughs> really it was an accident wouldn't. so go Did ahead what, what were you going to say nick well i was just going to say that some people uh thought that his the lack of flotation devices on board were a problem for him because it's obviously shows a lack of uh, forethought but if you were going to deliberately ditch the aircraft, I think that's one of the things you'd make sure you did have on board. So perhaps that adds credence to the reality of the event. Yeah, that definitely does add credence, I think. So, yeah, I mean, it, like you said, Jeff, this could just be a case of, um, you know, crying wolf a little bit where this was an actual incident and, you know, they're very lucky that. Yes, there was someone else there that was able to radio for help immediately, happened to witness the entire thing, and everyone got out okay, um, except for the loss of the plane. So, Yeah. Expensive uh, stunt. Yes. If, yeah. As, as <laughs> uh, we said, if it were a stunt, definitely yeah. an expensive one. Okay. Um, item B, EasyJet bans pilot from flying after finding... Quote, I'm suicidal. WhatsApp messages. Uh, the EasyJet pilot has reported, reportedly been ordered to complete weeks of mental health tests before being allowed back inside the cockpit. Um, Pals passed the aviator's messages to his bosses after he told them, I'm suicidal. My life is SH blank blank. And I'm probably going to kill myself in a WhatsApp group. I don't blame them for being concerned uh, about that. And uh, the article continues, and this is from The Mirror. 
the decision to ground the pilot may have been influenced by German Wings flyer Andreas Lubitz uh, crashing his plane in 2015 while suffering from depression. Uh, EasyJet has apparently told its employee he must complete many weeks of mental health tests before he can return to work. And uh, let's see, an insider at the airline told The Sun that they had to bar the pilot from flying after he warned friends he was probably going to take his own. Well, we just said that. So why do these articles continue to do that? They just say the same thing over and over and just rearrange people just don't pay attention very well. So you need to hear things in triplicate before it really sinks in. You know, just change the wording around a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, you can hardly blame EasyJet for being concerned that one of their pilots is uh, putting out messages there. And his friends were concerned enough that they said, we better let somebody know that this is going on. No, but it sounds like they're, you know, really helping this guy to to take care of the problem and get the help that he needs. Um, you know, it wasn't, uh, doesn't sound like there's anything accusatory here. It's just, hey, until you're in a better mental state, you know, you shouldn't be uh, operating an aircraft and be responsible for so many lives on board. I think it's the. No, I have no problem at all with uh, the actions of his friends to advise mm-hmm. uh, the airline. Uh, of course, the thing that concerns me is that the tabloids get hold of the story. So, someone either in that WhatsApp group, which you would assume are his reasonably close friends, otherwise, he wouldn't have confided in them. And it's not a it, uh, WhatsApp is not a social media uh, app that will spread it to everyone. It's usually, it's, you know, it's like a. Sm- small group message messaging uh, app and it's uh, it's fairly well um cryptic encrypted yeah mm-hmm. so it's safe but somebody in either in the company or his friends has leaked this to the newspapers and the only motivation i, I can see for that because it does the individual no good whatsoever to have his medical problems blasted all over the newspapers uh, is for monetary gain. I can't see any advantage in uh, in that at all. Uh, so that's really what disappoints me about the story. Uh, having been someone who uh, put himself sick because uh, I was suffering from depression myself, uh, I know the kind of hoops he'll have to jump through to uh, get his medical back, and it's not an easy process. And because it's your mental attitude, uh, the fact that you now have this out in the big wide world and everyone's talking about it is not going to make uh, that task uh, e- any easier for him. I only hope that the airline uh, stands by him and as mine did uh, and ensures he gets the uh, treatment uh, and looks after him and continues to pay him until he's uh, uh, fit enough to return to work. And I hope that occurs. Um, but it, it's just very sad to see that people are making money out of his difficult situation fortunately i just scanned back through the article here and it doesn't look like at least his name was published or anything like that or she i think it just says oh no it does say him but um yeah fortunately none of that information is out so well let's hope it stays that way yeah exactly yeah you know i hadn't even considered that uh, aspect of this the fact that it was somehow leaked to the uh, tabloids. That's that's no good. But if it hadn't been, then we wouldn't have known about it. We couldn't talk about it on the show. Well, that's true. But, I mean, <laughs> we do talk about these sort of occasions yeah, we uh, when people uh, become ill. Yes. Uh, and uh, we've covered it in the past. So, yeah. Uh, you know. That's true. I was just being a little facetious. 
No, no, that's fine. You you can facetious your way. Okay. Um, and we do cover every facet of every news item that we can. See what I did there? Facet, facetious. Oh, okay. That, okay. That went straight over my head. Poof. Yeah. Um, I got it, but I was just going to let it go. Okay. Yeah, I Probably don't, best. I don't blame you, Steph. Yeah. Probably best, yeah. <laughs> Steph yeah, knows, we'll that knows a, best. A, a one out of ten, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. By the way, um, in my little area where I've decided to set up my stand-up uh, studio, um, I've just noticed that it really picks up the uh, people doing the yard work uh, really, really well. <laughs> I heard the guy. Well, you probably haven't hear heard it, it yet. That's good. Mm -hmm. uh, with a uh, blower out there. But uh, I guess today must be yard day here at the house. Anyway, continuing on with item C. Honolulu, Hawaii. This is from Hawaii, Hawaiian News Now, or is it Hawaii News Now, I guess. Uh, seven passengers were taken to hospitals Thursday after smoke filled the cabin and cargo hold of a Hawaiian Airlines flight from Oakland about 20 minutes before the aircraft made a dramatic emergency landing and evacuation at Honolulu's airport. In a statement released about 6 p.m. Thursday, I guess that was last week, a Hawaiian airline said it had determined the smoke was caused by a problem in the plane's engine. Quote, we have de since determined that a seal failed in the aircraft's left engine, causing oil to leak onto hot parts of the plane's engine and air conditioning pressurization system, resulting in smoke in the cabin, said Hawaiian airline spokesperson Alex De Silva in an emailed statement. He added the performance of the engine was not affected. Passenger Lucky Kara said the cabin filled with smoke all of a sudden on approach to Hon Honolulu. I was scared. It just kept, kept getting worse and worse, and there were uh, a few people that were crying, but they settled down. She added that the evacuation was terrifying, but organized. There were a few little bumps and bruises from people coming down the slides more than anything, she said. The gal sitting next to me when she came down, she had a big rug burn from the slide. Passengers said flight attendants passed out wet cloths for people to breathe through. The smoke was getting really thick, said passenger Linda Pugh, adding that first responders were ready and waiting for the aircraft when it arrived. Something you think you're never going to do, but you go very fast and the firemen are down there catching you and helping you up. I guess she's talking about going down the slides. Hawaiian Airlines speaks to reporters after emergency landing at, oh, that's probably something that was a caption for a an image. Sorry. Uh, John Snook, chief operations officer at Hawaiian, said that uh, five adults and two children were taken to hospitals and they were suffering from smoke-related symptoms. Uh, their injuries did not appear to be severe. Um, once the plane landed, there was very little smoke in the cabin area and no smoke in the cargo hold, according to airport fire chief Glenn Mitchell. And so... Um, that's we have some pictures here from Hawaii, uh, news now.com shows the interior of the aircraft with, uh, the smoke. Um, apparently at first they thought that, um, well, they had to start running their checklists. You know, first, the first thing that we do in this kind of a situation is don our oxygen masks in the cockpit because our masks are sealed and uh, we do that uh, to make sure that we can continue to uh, remain conscious and uh, be continue to control the airplane. And uh, depending on the oxygen mask situation, some of them have uh, 
goggles that go over. They're all kind of all in one kind of systems that help us see through the smoke. Um, and we, uh, other systems have a separate oxygen mask and a separate um, pair of or set of goggles for us to use. And then we have to uh, establish communication with the crew to make sure that everybody's communicating and establish communication with the cabin crew as well to see what's going on back there. Um, and then, of course, you start diving into your checklists. One of the keys to these kind of situations is to be able to identify as quickly as you can what kind of, you know, what is the smoke? What, where is it coming from? And I think, I don't know for sure, but I think that at first they thought that it um, wasn't related to the engine, nor was it related to the air conditioning system. Um, they, uh, did quite a, try to get down very quickly and expedite their arrival into, uh, Honolulu. Uh, but I don't believe they knew, uh, until they got into the ground and maybe not even at that point that the situation was that the seal had breached in, uh, one of the engines and that was being sucked into the air conditioning pressurization system. Any commentary there, uh, Nick or Steph? Well, I was going to say that uh, I would like, love to see aircraft manufacturers uh, continue on the vein of the uh, Dreamliner 787 and have uh, electric-powered pressurization systems for uh, modern aircraft because I think personally that the day of days of uh, bleeding air out of the engines to pressurize the aircraft uh, is should be gone by now we should have uh, come up with a better system and uh, the oils that they use in engines are not pleasant uh, they are they've got a high level of toxicity toxicity and they can if you get um, regular exposure to it cause long-term uh, problems for some people who are susceptible uh, and that's not good. So uh, I personally would like to see uh, the air taken straight from the atmosphere, nice and clean, not from the inside of an engine, because even if uh, you don't get one of these major seal failures where you get a lot of oil, uh, you know, there, there is a suspicion that even small amounts, tiny amounts uh, can get into the aircraft and uh, have uh, caused problems uh, in the past. At least it's believed they cause mm -hmm. problems. There's, there's no definite proof, uh, but some people uh, certainly have uh, had uh, health issues which they put down to uh, oil escaping into an aircraft. So um, my feeling is uh, let's all go on follow Boeing on this uh, type of uh, electric uh, pump uh, style pressurization system. I'd like to see that. Um, apart from that, no, they seem to have done a good job with the landing and the evacuation. Uh, excellent. Uh, nice to see that no one took their luggage with them yes, when they jumped out of the airplane. <laughs> yeah, so there's some, some people, improvement people there. People have been listening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody, yes, yeah. exactly. I also like the right. fact that the flight attendants, you know, were, were handing out, um, you know, washcloths or towels with, you know, soaked in water to help people mm -hmm. breathe. Um, I think that Helps the make things a little more comfortable, at least. Yeah, I think the oxygen masks did drop, not related to the the fact that there was smoke in the airplane, but more related to the fact that they did an emergency descent. But I'm not positive. Oh, really? About I don't that. think they did. Oh, didn't? They? Okay. No. Nope. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Well, that's good to know because, as we know, you know, the oxygen mask, the passenger oxygen mask systems are not there for smoke. They're there for keeping the 
partial pressure of oxygen high enough so that you don't pass out until we get down to a lower altitude. But okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Juan Brown, again, Blanco Lirio uh, YouTube channel, did a nice um, video about this incident and uh, what a little bit of detail about the seals, how they are supposed to work, and how this one uh, somehow failed on one of the engines. And uh, and he basically says the same thing uh, that you're saying, Nick, that we do need to move to a system much like the Dreamliner that uh, bypasses taking this potentially dirty air from the engines and running our air conditioning and pressurization systems. Yeah. I'm wondering if, by the um, way, uh, out of interest, Austin in the uh, chat room says uh, he, and Austin is uh, obviously uh, one of us, an airline pilot. He had fumes in the cockpit Tuesday night uh, in the, and did an emergency descent with goggles and mask on, ran the checklist. They were unable to find the source of fumes, but it was very potent. Interesting. What kind of uh, airplane, Austin? Uh, that'll probably take us a while. Yeah. We'll, we'll wait <laughs> for another seconds. couple of minutes and we'll, we'll get the answer. Sorry, you were saying about Airbus? I was going to say, I wonder if uh, that was a thought regarding the uh, the latest model of the uh, Airbus, the 350. I'm wondering if that I would was... have liked to have seen the Airbus 350 with electric packs, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, as is common, um, Airbus don't tend to follow Boeing uh, concepts and vice versa. So uh, perhaps they said, well, well, Boeing are doing it this way. We'll continue to do it the old way. I don't know. But uh, mm-hmm. certainly it has advantages of fuel consumption because uh, the more air you bleed out of an engine, uh, the more work that engine has to do. So uh, it can improve your uh, specific fuel consumption. Uh, but, of course, you've got to pay that back and find the energy somewhere to uh, power the powerful electric pumps that uh, would pressurize the aircraft. All right. Um, oh, he was a uh, MC-12. Uh, is that a uh, like a King uh, Air? Austin it's said. a heavily modified King Air 350. Okay, there we go. Okay. Heavily modified mm. King Air 350 recon airplane. Okay. Cool. Austin said heavily modified. Heavily yes. modified. Well, tell us all about it, Austin. <laughs> yeah. Send us some feedback yeah. if you're allowed Probably all to. S- super Probably not allowed stuff. to talk about it. It's military. Yeah. We never heard from Austin again after this episode. <laughs> that's that's what Fred does, you know. <laughs> Maybe that's why Fred hangs around, just to see yeah. these little breaches. Then he mm-hmm. takes care of it. Exactly mm-hmm. right. <laughs> there, there was an accident. <laughs> yeah. Be careful out there, Austin. Yes. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Oh, I'm sure you all saw this one. Uh, I guess they were doing some work on an Emirates, uh, Airbus A380 super jumbo in, uh, I believe it was Dubai. Yep. And, uh, they were, it, the uh, airplane was go- undergoing an A check, which is a, a pretty extensive check on the aircraft. Apparently they were, had the airplane on jacks, um, doing some work on the landing gear system. And, had being the operative had it was on jacks for a while uh-huh. <laughs> and then somehow i don't know the jacks collapsed or it just slipped off the jacks i'm not sure exactly what happened here but um basically the airplane came down and uh i don't think anybody was hurt in this in- incident at least they didn't say anything about it no they said everyone was safe and unhurt yep. and there was some speculation on various uh, groups online, whether or not this was going to be something that could be repaired, or I would imagine that this would be something that you would be able to repair. Um, not sure how high 
uh, it was off the off the ground and how far it traveled uh, before it slammed in, down on its nose. But uh, it says the aircraft sustained damage to its radome, the upper half of which appears to have separated, while the gear doors and surrounding fuselage underside are badly deformed. The status of the nose gear itself is unclear. So, anyway, it's kind uh, of a sad oops. looking. Yeah. Not, Def- not the first sad. time. Yeah. They've had a few problems over there, but uh, oh, really? there you go. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. Of, who was that? Uh, the airline, the engineers uh, um, were doing engine run-ups in a brand new A340-600 oh, yeah. and oh, ran yeah. it into the, uh, mm. into the blast wall. I don't uh, remember I'm, who I'm that was. I which airline that was. It was too. Yeah, it was so I better not say, but it, I have a feeling. It might have been yeah. the same place. No, you never know. You never know. Yeah. That didn't go too well. There were injuries in that one. That's oh, actually that's very true. Yes, yeah. so somebody mm-hmm. will probably in the in the chat room will remember. Yeah. Okay. Well, moving on. This airplane was significantly damaged. Uh, an Air China Airbus A330. Uh, this from samchewy.com. Uh, an Airbus A330-300 has been significantly damaged after a fire spread through the forward section of the aircraft. Uh, registration Bravo 5958. The aircraft was preparing to operate Flight 183 when a fire prompted an evacuation via the front jet bridge. Videos show crew members briskly walking slash jogging through the bridge with smoke emitting from the aircraft. Uh, Beijing Capital International Airport states a black storage container inside the aircraft was producing significant amounts of smoke. However, no flames were on board. Video show otherwise with the upper fuselage burned through and large amounts of smoke coming from the aircraft. Emergency services attending the scene were captured spraying firefighting fluids into or in the direction of the smoke source. And uh, here's an update on this article from Sam Chewy. It's been reported that the fire originated in the cargo hold of the aircraft with heat and flames making their way to the cabin and penetrating the fuselage. Air China confirmed the incident in a post on Weibo, a Chinese equivalent to Twitter. That read, quote, smoke was detected during boarding in the storage unit of Flight 183, which was set to fly from Beijing to Tokyo. Crew members and airport staff have successfully put out this smoke. We are investigating the cause of the incident. <laughs> they put out the smoke. Yeah, you look at the pictures here. There was there was some fire where that smoke came from. Well, yeah, I think the the aircraft was very badly damaged. So uh, beyond yeah, repair, I think it was in this more, case, more I think. than just a bit of smoke. Yeah, <laughs> come on, guys. Um, so it must have been the forward cargo hold then, because uh, there I, one of the photos does show some smoke pouring from the aft, one of the aft uh, exits. However, I think that's probably the smoke that's traveled from the front of the aircraft all the way to the back, because I, yeah. didn't, I didn't see any evidence of burning through the fuselage there. What do you think, uh, Steph? No, I did see some, um, I thought it was the same incident where there were more aerial type photos or at least uh-huh. taken from a higher vantage point and you can see where it's burned through the top of the fuselage as well but not on the back I, um, I forget exactly yeah my point was that i don't think it i think it all took place in the front although there was smoke billowing from the back doors i don't think that that's where the actual source of the smoke was coming from but what do i know i wasn't there yeah, well, they're saying that uh, heat and flames uh, made their way into the cabin, penetrating the fuselage. So uh, one wonders what was in the cargo hold. And, of course, my immediate mm. uh, thought is lithium-ion batteries. batteries. But, uh, what do I know? 
I don't know. But they're dangerous. We do know that. I said, yeah. And I think that would be a very reasonable thing to assume. But uh, I guess we'll find out. Hopefully we'll find out um, on future reports and uh, in their investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an interesting one. Um, on 22 August, a Smart Wings Boeing 737-800 operated flight 1125 from Samos. Greek, Greece, I'm sorry, Samos, to Prague, Czech Republic, with 170 passengers on, passengers on board. The aircraft was flying at 36,000 feet over the Aegean Sea, about 100 nautical miles northeast of Athens, Greece, when the crew drifted the aircraft down to 24,000 feet and continued to Prague at that level for a landing without further incident, about two hours and 20 minutes later. And... Uh, this is from aviation24.be, but they got most of their information from our favorite website, the Aviation Herald, uh, which reported that the aircraft's left-hand engine shut down spontaneously while flying at 36,000 feet. The crew descended the aircraft to 24,000 feet. And uh, when we lose an engine, we do a one-engine drift down because the aircraft can't maintain altitude uh, when you have both you know, the same kind of altitude that you can maintain with two engines or more running. Uh, so that's why they descended to 24,000 feet. They worked the related checklists and attempted to relight the engine twice, first using windmilling and then using crossbleed. The engine, however, did not restart. As there was sufficient fuel on board, the crew decided to continue to prog nonetheless. By the way, the airline Smart Wings is based at or in Prague. Uh, just a, a point of fact. And the pilots, however, uh, continued their journey for another two hours and 20 minutes on uh, the uh, forum Professional Pilots Rumor Network, I believe, P-P-R-U-N-E, I think that's what that stands for, pprune.org. Pprune, yeah. Professional Pilot Rumor Network. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That uh, member comments that in a case of engine failure, the pilots are required to find the nearest suitable airport. Yes, I think we would all agree with that. Um, And uh, so the crew didn't mention to air traffic control that they were flying on one engine. I believe that's still a requirement uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, Mark, an air traffic controller working at the Budapest Uh, ACC commented on the article published in the Aviation Herald. I was in contact with this aircraft when they overflew Hungary. Not a word did they mention about engine failure. Uh, We were informed about a technical issue. That is, in most cases, an air conditioning failure, a pressurization failure for the 737 to fly at 24 or flight level 250. So they came in at flight level 240. As they reached the Austrian border, we sent them to Vienna approach. Ten minutes later, they called us back to inquire why we hadn't told them about the engine failure. <laughs> well, because we didn't know. Like, we didn't know about they it. They didn't tell us. <laughs> they didn't tell us. Yeah. Uh, it turned out that the failure was announced over Prague. Uh, Vienna then called us back, uh, but we didn't know either. Uh, Serbians were also unaware and also asked my colleague who was working at Kosovo Airspace uh, as it also operated from Budapest, but he didn't know either. So apparently they were, we have a little secret. We're not going to tell you why we're down here at 24 or 25. Just a technical issue. Yeah, tech issue. Uh, so yeah. basically, 
um, here, obviously, you're you're gathering what the issue. Of course, the issue that caused this whole thing was the engine failure, which you know happens. Uh, it's not an uncommon uncommon thing. The thing that is uncommon about the story, and why we're talking about it, is the fact that they didn't immediately take care of the situation, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take the appropriate action, and land as soon as conditions permit. So. I don't know what the operating manual of this airline says, but I think that it goes against every regulatory agency out there in the world. I think they all assume that if you have something significant, like an engine failure, that you're going to be not going to your destination. And unless you're like very close to your destination, you're going to divert and get the airplane on the ground. There's an interesting um, statement from the Smart Wings spokesperson whose name I definitely cannot pronounce oh come on try vladka dufkova that's exactly you nailed it sure um definitely can't pronounce the name of the newspaper or the website is it no (laughs) no anyway uh spokesperson says the crew proceeded in accordance with the safety and operational procedures for these cases and the aircraft landed safely the commander of the aircraft is one of the most experienced in the company the crew had the situation under control and certainly would not underestimate anything hmm hmm yeah, uh, I'm not convinced. Uh, mm. I'm also uh, I'm I can't see it in these notes, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that the pilot involved was actually a senior management pilot, so he was part of the airline's oh. management. Hmm. Uh, I might be wrong there, but that's what I read, and I can't back that up now because I can't see where I read it. Hmm. Uh, but uh, um. I can understand the pressure of a senior management pilot wanting to get his airplane home uh, so that they can fix it at their home base. Uh, And if it was an ETOPS aircraft out in the middle of the Atlantic, of course, doing a two-hour, if you were ETOPS qualified, doing a two-hour, 20-minute flight wouldn't be necessarily unusual. But if you're not ETOPS, uh, extended twin operations, and you're in the middle of Europe, with lots of suitable airports around you, I don't think there's any justification whatsoever. Um, no, it sounds like a bit of press on either to get back to your home base, but that's me guessing. Um, I, I'm not impressed personally uh, with his actions, the captain's actions, neither to declare emergencies with all the agencies he's going through and to land. Um, for us, we look at our manual, and if it says land as soon as possible, that means put it down straight away. If it says land as soon as practical, that means you look for a decent airport to put it down in. So it doesn't mean you necessarily go to some airfield with a nice short little runway and very poor navades when there's a decent airfield by. But two hours, 20 minutes across Europe, you'll have gone past an awful lot of airfields. Right. I think that's why everybody's kind of going, hmm, not so And to not say anything about it either. That's Right. Yeah. Obviously, they knew that it was a serious situation, and that's why they didn't tell anybody what was happening there, apparently. I think there's a chance that that's the situation, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Some great comments in the chat room. Um, Austin says, doesn't sound very smart to me. And then Nico says, well, that's why they're renaming the airline not so smart wings. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Very good. Yeah. yeah. Humor at their expense, of course. Well, I think that, uh, well, let's see the check. Well, fortunately, see. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where fortunately we can be a little bit humorous about it um, and poke fun at the 
the name of the airline, but could have been a lot more serious. Oh, and yeah. that's why there's um, standard standard operating procedures in place for these types of things. Yeah, so that, they don't turn into a more serious incident or occurrence. Exactly right. Let's just remember that one of the causes of an engine failure can be fuel contamination. Mm -hmm. So whilst you have one engine fails, if it's fuel contamination, there's a good chance that the other engine will fail. And prolonging your flight unnecessarily, I think, is a foolish thing to do if you're absolutely, if you don't have any real clue as to why the first engine failed. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You got to be wondering hmm, what exactly. exactly is the reason for this spontaneous yeah. engine shutdown. Do okay. we have any more information as to why it failed? No. I don't think so no. yet. Okay. Mm -hmm. They probably know, but they're not telling anybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very smart. <laughs> no. It was fine. Everything was under control. Nothing was under control. Nothing to see here. <laughs> Move <laughs> on. Come on. Don't you have better things to do? <laughs> yeah, well Are we still yeah. talking about this? Yeah. Turn great. that spotlight away from us, please. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to skip G. I'll save that for last in the okay. news. And uh, let's go to um, uh, another tragedy. Well, this one, a tragedy. Um, a former Patrulla or Patrulla? Patrulla. Ag Aguila. How would you say that? Aguila. 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 Okay. Solo pilot dies in a tragic Casa C-101 accident. Uh, perhaps, uh, listener, uh, you've seen the video for this. If not, then you can look at the link that we have for you in our show notes. That shows it was somebody on the shoreline off uh, one of the, um, well, the Spanish coasts um, taking video of this uh, airplane. Appears to me to be coming out of a loop or a split S or some kind of a maneuver like that, uh, where initially the airplane is pointed straight down vertically and then starts its pull up uh, and looks like they ran out or he ran out of altitude, uh, perhaps loaded up uh, with G as much as the airplane could, could muster in the uh, energy situation it was in. And it, um, uh, it hit the water basically at a kind of a flat um, angle of attack. And the, uh, at the first article I read, it said some kind of a training incident because it is a trainer aircraft, but it's also the aircraft that this, uh, demonstration team uses for their demonstration, aerial demonstrations. And apparently he was practicing, uh, for one of their routines and, uh, ended up, uh, perishing in this accident. No, uh, attempt appears that there, there was no attempt for an ejection prior to impact with the water. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty, um, pretty sad looking video, uh, as it attempts to pull out from this aerobatic maneuver, uh, but was not successful. I'm wondering how much, uh, this had to do with the fact that he penetrated cloud during this, uh, maneuver. So, on his way down, whether it was a looping maneuver or he was just pulling through, I don't know. But he uh, was approaching the vertical. In other words, he was on his back and pulling towards vertically nose down when he went into cloud. And he pops out again uh, and he changes his engine power or there's something happening because there's a change in the color of the jet E-flux out of the back shortly after he comes out of the cloud. And he doesn't seem to be making a lot of progress to pulling out. Uh, it just seems to be a fairly steady 
pull. He almost makes it, doesn't he? Because he almost levels off, but does, not quite. Just yep. hits the water before he gets there. Yep. Um, and uh, very sad. But I wonder if he'd had a clear view of the sea coming up towards him all the way through this, uh, then he might have been more attuned to uh, his height and put a few more Gs on, perhaps, and saved himself. But uh, uh, it, it's never easy and never good if you've got poor weather conditions when you're mm -hmm. trying to do looping maneuvers, particularly if you've got a very low-level pullout. That's, I couldn't really tell exactly because the videos that I saw, you know, kind of started from, but it did appear that he had, had emerged from the cloud. And I'm thinking, oh man, didn't realize how close he was to the yeah. water. Yeah. And I can imagine well, too, I, if it was. I ran, I ran it through in sort of five second or two second blips mm -hmm. and you can see him above the cloud. Uh, and then he disappears as he goes through the layer. And then he pops out the bottom, and he's more or less vertically uh, nose down when he pops out and starts his pull. So, do you think that cloud layer created some flat light conditions too over the water? It yeah, might well have done. I mean, to... it is always a it's a known problem yeah. when you're yeah. if you're displaying over the water of poor horizons mm -hmm. and lack of depth perception. Because when you're doing it over land, of course, you've got all those familiar features which give you a very uh, good idea of uh, your height. And, uh, of course, when you're in a vertical maneuver, the alameda is winding very fast. So you rely on hitting gates, uh, and uh, his gate would probably have been upside down at the top, at the speed and the height gate, to make sure he was well positioned to do the pull-through. But then it relies purely on, from that point onwards, really, on his handling skills and the amount he, or how well he flies the aircraft in that second half of the maneuver as to how hard he turns it and whether he has the height sufficient to recover. That's all about managing that energy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, um, sadly, uh, was not a happy ending for nope. Nope. this gentleman. There's not a lot of room for errors when you're doing low-level aerobatics. And no. the, the number of uh, very high-quality aerobatics pilots that uh, regularly have uh, major mishaps uh, is, you know, is well known. Uh, there have been a huge number of uh, military formation pilots have died over the years. Uh, and um, in fact, my next plane tale is going to cover uh, one of those incidents. But uh, yeah, um, it doesn't matter uh, if you're a, an incredibly well-trained pilot when you're doing uh, aerobatics very close to the ground. Uh, you don't need uh, to make many mistakes before, you know, you find yourself with nowhere to go. Yeah, when yep. I was doing um, aerobatics in the Air Force, the lowest I ever, um, the floor of the area that I was using was like 10,000 feet. So always had a nice margin or a big buffer between myself and terra firma when I was doing all those kind of maneuvers. Never, exactly right. Never had the experience of doing something like that very, very close to the ground. Yeah, and if you've ever bonged your base height, as we used to say, when you flew through your your imaginary ground, as as we did if frequently, if we're working to ten thousand feet, you're trying to judge that level off, and you uh, you don't quite make it. You think to yourself, "Ooh, I'm glad I was doing this at ten thousand feet, <laughs> and not not, not starting for a one hundred foot level." Yeah. Off. Yeah. yeah, I think a T thirty eight. I think a loop. I th uh, I'm not sure about this because it's been a very, very long time, but I think it took like 11,000 feet of altitude to, to complete the entire loop uh, or from top to bottom. 11,000? 
I think it was a big number like that. Um, wow. Well, it, it only had tiny little wings. Yeah, tiny, tiny little That's wings. Yeah. Very fast. <laughs> now, the true. <laughs> um, one of the last times I was uh, solo on the T-38, though, I, I didn't have a chance. I think I've mentioned this a few times on the show. I didn't have a chance to have my special clipboard that has my little cheat the page that has a cheat sheet for uh, the entry parameters for the various maneuvers. Because, and it had been a while since I'd flown aerobatics and had been solo. And uh, the scheduler saw me and goes, Jeff, get out or Lieutenant, get out there and, you know, fly, fly your last solo. And I went, oh, okay. And so I thought the first thing I would do, uh, open up the whole series of aerobatic maneuvers in my area was a loop. And uh, so I put the nose down and put the power to military, which is basically full power without afterburner. And uh, I thought, well, there's 350 knots. And so I started my, I don't know, three, four G pull up. And right at about uh, 80, 90 degrees, nose high, I realized that something didn't feel quite right. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, the only thing I could remember was my instructor uh, when I was a st- started flying the T-38. Uh, we were doing a similar type of maneuver that I got ourselves into. And he was yelling at me, don't touch the throttles, don't touch the throttles. And so in my head, I could hear that, even though I was by myself. And uh, so I ended up kind of recovering from that. And it turns out that when I got back, I looked and I, I only missed it by 100 knots, the uh, entry speed. I think the <laughs> entry was supposed to be 400, that just that much. That's not bad for you, Jeff. That's good. <laughs> oh, thanks. Right on target speed. <laughs> I try to, my airspeed control, I try to keep within 100 knots. Yeah. Yeah. Plus or minus 100 knots. That's good. <laughs> that sounds like good a good target. tolerance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the rest of that, uh, that solo, um, my last solo, uh, what do we call that? Contact. Uh, ride was spent uh, what we call border patrol. <laughs> I was just <laughs> staying in the middle of my area, just basically doing circles until the time was up and the fuel got down to a certain point. I thought, okay, now I head back, uh, do about like three uh, circuits around the pattern, you know, three touch and goes and try not to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> good, good idea. <laughs> we like that that strategy. And hey, I'm here. It worked. Yeah. You made it. <laughs> I made it. Oh, okay. And finally, some sad news. Um, we've talked about this accident. It's famous um, uh, many, many times. In fact, many people, Nick, have asked you to do a plain tale about it. And maybe I we'll... keep thinking he already had done one, but that's not. Nope, that's he, not he hasn't because yeah. he no, says it's, it's been so it's just... well told. But I still think that Captain Nick tells it better than anybody else. So maybe mm-hmm. we can talk him into it. But uh, the, uh, let's see, what is it? United Airlines uh, 232, I believe, was the flight number. Correct. Uh, Sioux City, uh, or is it Sioux City or Sioux Falls? Sioux City. Uh, Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, they were going from, uh, what, Denver to Denver. Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were at 37,000 feet. And uh, sh- uh, the number two engine, the one mounted on the tail, the DC-10, exploded and shrapnel from the explosion broke through the trijet's hydraulic lines, making it nearly impossible for the flight crew to control the plummeting plane. So we all remember that story, and they got it down. And I think that more than half of the uh, passengers on board. Uh, yeah, correct. Like, there were 184 that survived and 111 that perished, okay. unfortunately. So, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. They, if not for the the skills and uh, cockpit resource or crew resource management of the crew and especially the captain of this flight um, it could have been a total tragedy and total loss and it was 
kind of a miracle that they were able to get the thing on the ground as they did, and and so many people survived. Well, the captain, uh, we all know, Captain Al Haynes, United Airlines pilot, uh, who was uh, in command of that uh, that flight, uh, just recently died, just a few days ago. Uh, he was just shy of 88 years old, I think, this week. I think he would have been 88 years old. Um, he is a, a hero to pilots everywhere for saving more than 100 lives during a crash. As I said, 184 to be exact. And, um, you know, it was an interesting article here. This is from, uh, let's see, the Seattle Times. He was um, living in the Seattle area uh, when he passed. Uh, but apparently... Al had a really good sense of humor. And one of the uh, last parts of this article I thought uh, was, was interesting enough to, uh, to read to everybody listening here. Uh, I guess the, um, the other crew members, the uh, first officer and second officer on the airplane, the uh, flight engineer, had kind of kept in touch with each other over the years. And uh, they were talking about uh, Captain Al's um, sense of humor. And they said both uh, Dvorak and Records said that Mr. Haynes never lost his sense of humor. Dvorak uh, said he vividly remembers when the plane skidded to a halt and the cockpit crumpled. The lights shut off, and after a beat, Mr. Haynes asked, uh, asked him where he was. And Dvorak said, I'm right above you. And Haynes, under a pile of aluminum and machinery, replied, I think you need to lose some weight. <laughs> This is after a horrible crash. Yeah, absolutely. I I think he made some other kind of quips uh, to the air traffic controllers as they were talking about landing on a certain runway. And he said something to the effect like, oh, you want us to actually land on a runway? Yes. (laughs) Specifying what runway you want me to land? Yeah. Wow. Great. Um, Definitely a hero uh, pilot. And uh, we're all going to miss Captain Al Haynes. Rest in peace. Absolutely. Very well said. And. And we'll look forward to Captain Nick's plain tales about this. (laughs) Yes, we will. At some point in the Uh, future. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we go to uh, the feedback section of our show, we're going to go ahead and do something that we didn't do at the beginning because we wanted to. um, Oh, wait a minute. Audio, Jeff. Is there some audio that I'm missing? What is um the was there audio? Oh, along with that? thank you. Yes, our producer is on top of it. Oh, there is. Yes, that's the way I was supposed to start this um this this news item. Um, Rachel uh, sent us some audio feedback, so let's hear what Rachel had to say about Captain Al's passing. Hey guys, it's Rachel from Chattanooga, Tennessee. First of all, I left y'all some feedback way back in March in advance of my trip to Iceland with a question regarding code sharing that had stemmed out of the issues with the 737 MAX 8 and 9. I wanted to thank you for your time in tracking down an answer to that question and my apologies for not calling with that any sooner. Life just got in the way, honestly, with two little ones especially. But I wanted to reach out today after I learned that Captain Al Haynes, of course the captain of United Flight 232, passed away yesterday. I've spent quite a bit of time over many years getting my hands on as many articles and interviews, etc. as I could to learn as much as I could about 232. 
And I never had the opportunity to meet Captain Haynes, but he seemed to be an incredibly humble man and is certainly one of my aviation heroes, if not the top aviation hero. I would love to hear your reflections as seasoned airline captains on Captain Haynes and his legacy, not just from the lessons learned out of 232 itself, but on the impact that he had afterwards in educating and talking about his experience. Um, I looked back through all of the available Plane Tales episodes and I didn't see it. I hope I didn't just overlook it, but if not, perhaps it would be a good topic for the future. Thank you guys again for your time and for keeping me really good company during my many hours of driving. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Rachel. Wouldn't that have been perfect to play before we even started talking about Captain L. Haynes? It sure would have. Yeah. Uh, if, well, you can always fix it in post. Yeah. Yeah. Probably won't. Um, <laughs> so Rachel makes uh, has some good observations and also some good questions for the crew. Um, yes, uh, he, after Captain Al Haynes retired, which was shortly after this accident, in fact, and this is back in the days where you had to retire at age 60, uh, he didn't stop. He wanted to make sure that, uh, people learned from this accident and he, uh, went out and, and gave presentations to a bunch of different groups over the rest of, from that point on, from the time that, he retired until he passed away, and uh, he was very engaged with uh, speaking um, speaking to a lot of different groups, um, and that's that's really cool. I think that he didn't just you know go and live the rest of his career, or his life, you know, playing golf and not being a uh, an important part of our aviation community. I never got a chance to meet him myself. I was just listening to uh, Brandon Gonzalez's podcasting on a plane podcast, and uh, I believe it was the, the latest one that he did. And he talks about at the very beginning, the fact that he did have an opportunity to meet Captain Haynes about 12 years ago, I believe, in some kind of a maintenance uh, symposium or something of all things, he said. Uh, but he said that he uh, really respected the, the captain and uh, really enjoyed meeting him and talking with him. We we used to um, discuss that uh, accident and uh, particularly how Al Haynes uh, delegated his responsibilities and brought the best out of the crew and used all the um, crew resources at his uh, command to make sure that uh, he took you know had the best possible outcome for that accident and his ability to. Uh, step outside and not try and do too much of the flying himself and think his way through the uh, problems and delegate uh, was very much uh, one of the um, lessons we learned when we did crew resource uh, management and uh, something that we would all try and emulate if had we been in the same situation. So uh, that uh, accident and his ability um, led the way uh, for encouraging a great number of pilots to uh, act in the same way and uh, hopefully uh, he has a lasting legacy amongst those of us that have studied the accident really interesting article the seattle times article uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes talking about uh, the fact that you know again uh, kind of emphasizing his sense of humor uh, the uh, 
first officer uh, said that uh, Mr. Haynes had the uncanny ability to make him laugh until he wheezed. <laughs> we all know what that. <laughs> that's a nice way to, to put it. <laughs> yeah. He also filled his days with little league umpiring, a tradition he started in 1970 when his nine-year-old son Dan started playing, and he was an announcer for a local high school football team or football teams. Go ahead, Steph. Uh, you may have already said this, and I apologize if you did. I was trying to find some other information that I can't quite come across and don't remember the details of, but the article does mention that a lot of the um, uh, funds he earned from doing the speaking that he did um, went to scholarship funds for um, mm. children of crew members who died in the crash um, and, and for other people who were adversely affected. So just all around good person, too. Yeah. The, one of the crew members said he was just a people person. He had no interest in big financial trappings. Sound, sounds like a very down-to-earth kind of guy. Indeed. Yep. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, the Coffee Fund. That's where we talk about how you can support the show financially. And it's called the Coffee Fund, and you can become part of the Coffee Fund cadre if you'd like. That is, as long as you have the resources to do so. And we have a couple of different ways to support us via the Coffee Fund. And the first is the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last show, we have three recurring contributors. We have uh, Vigner... Jason and Alistair and the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via Patreon and we have two new producers James Mack and Travis Harpley welcome gentlemen to the Coffee Fun Cadre and we also have a new executive producer and that gentleman's name is Jimmy Reeks so if you want to join this great group of folks who support the show Head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, and there you'll find what fits you best, whether you want to make a one-time donation, a recurring donation via the classic method, or to become a patron of the show. You'll be glad you did, and we will, too. Thank you. Captain, incoming message. All right, now we start with the first item in our feedback folder, and this is an actual piece of feedback that we talked about, Steph and I talked about on the last episode, and then we realized that uh, we probably should get some input from those who weren't able to help us answer this feedback on the last show. We were hoping for both Dana and Nick, uh, their input, but uh, looks like it's just going to be Nick. So I'll start off by saying, uh, greetings, APG crew and the world's okayest Airbus guy. <laughs> I well, didn't that, Tom did. That's kind of a compliment, I guess. <laughs> I guess. It's your favorite millennial, Tom. You know these millennials, Nick. They, they millennials just don't are backhanded they compliments. Just, yeah. They just don't respect yeah. their elders. Um, anyway, uh, millennial Tom from Pittsburgh reporting from the opposite side of the fire hose of part 121 training. I'm happy to say I'm officially through my first type rating off IOE and a full-fledged first officer on the jungle jet. 
Although I'm sorry to say I haven't been able to catch up with the show lately as I've been busy trying to keep up with the jet. I'm starting to catch up now with every layover and long sit that I have. I've been traveling a lot, even to Atlanta, and one of these days I'd love to meet up with you all. I'd also like to say congrats to Captain Nick on his retirement. Such a long, fruitful career finally comes to an end, and enjoy your retirement. I know. Well, thank you very late. much, sir. He goes, I know yeah, it's a little late, right. but I'm playing catch up here. So he turned to us for some advice, Nick, and he said, uh, for someone like me just getting uh, off uh, low time at their first uh, airline, if you could go back to your low time selves at your first airline, what would you tell them? I look forward to hearing from you guys again and hopefully have a meetup. Again, that's um, Millennial Tom from Pittsburgh. So, Nick, what sage advice do you have for this youngster? Uh, keep in the books, keep your nose clean, and uh, keep flying. Uh, you know, it's it, you're right uh, when you say it's uh, like a fire hose and you think uh, it all finishes perhaps when you've completed your 121 training. I can assure you it doesn't. And there is an awful lot to learn uh, about the actual business once you get in the seat, not just flying the airplanes and passing exams. So, uh, yeah, keep in the books. Try and read a chapter a day. Uh, well, that's what I used to do, only a chapter of flight. Uh, you probably won't have time to do that on your little hops. <laughs> No, I used to pull out the the manuals and and try and work through one chapter, uh, uh, you know, per sector. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, you probably won't be able to do that. But don't don't forget, stay in the books uh, and find out as much as you can. Watch the guys around you uh, and uh, try and pick up the their good habits. Try and ignore their bad habits. Uh, keep your mouth shut uh, and your eyes open. Very good. And just learn, learn, learn. Yes, Steph? Exactly. I don't think I said this the last time, um, but just thought of it. And it goes back to stuff that I've heard you all say before. But, um, you know, as first officer, you're really kind of captain in training also. Mm -hmm. So, you know, taking cues after certainly do all the other stuff that, that Nick talked about. That's really important. Make sure that you have a good foundation, but also um, Take notes from what you like in the captains that you work with, and you know you can take the the good parts of that and apply it um, when you become captain yourself. And maybe the not so good parts and file those under things I don't want to do. Going That's forward. actually what you do more of, I think. Yes, it's <laughs> <laughs> my experience. Oh yeah, I don't want to be like that. I'm not so gonna I'm not do going that. to do that. <laughs> that yeah. didn't work out well. <laughs> yeah, good advice. Good advice. All right, Tom. Hopefully that helped. And look forward to hearing uh, how your career progresses. Uh, let's see. Item number two, Andrew. Hi, y'all at APG. Currently, Robert Ballard, or Ballard, the man who found the Titanic and the Bismarck, is running a renewed expedition to search for the remains of Amelia, Amelia Earhart's and Fred Noonan's Lockheed Electra in the South Pacific. I've attached a few links in regards to the expedition called the Nautilus 2019 Expedition. Expedition, excuse me, as there have been some theories that they, Earhart and Noonan, could have crashed landed near the island of Nikumaruru. I like what they used to call it, Gardner Island. I can pronounce that. The island formerly known as Gardner Island. Yes, as opposed to Howland Island, which was the intended destination on their round the world trip. 
And so he gives us a link to that. Uh, the link shows the itinerary for the National Ge- Geographic Supported Nautilus mission to map and survey various places in the Pacific, including searching for the wreckage of Earhart's 1937 possible crash site. Uh, looks like uh, the documentary on the expedition will be released in October. And he says, as of this writing, the Nautilus expedition is still around Nico, Nikumaroro Island <laughs> until August 25th, which was, what, just a few days ago. So I guess they're all finished. Um, gives, gives us another um, link to the... International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, which, uh, how would you pronounce it? Tigar? Tiger. Tiger? Oh, okay. T-I-G-H-A-R, that makes sense. Tiger, which includes the recent discoveries and theories that have led Ballard to believe that Lockheed Electra's wreckage may be near Nick Island, or the Nicku hypothesis. And, uh, oh, I guess they got tired of trying to pronounce the whole name as well. They just uh, shortened it to N-I-K-U, Nicku. Uh, some interesting stuff. Also cool to look at some other work both uh, Tiger and the Nautilus Project has done. Keep up the good work and entertaining show. Andrew, formerly of Vancouver Island, now a la Quebec. Oui, oui. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Comment allez-vous? Uh, so uh, how many more people are going to try and make uh, money out of uh, Amelia Earhart's disappearance, I wonder? It's never ending. I don't know, but do you think we could figure out a way to do that? <laughs> well, you if you, do if anyone would book. like to sponsor us, I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> Come up with a few a faded exploring. photographs, yeah, a, a bit of old wreckage. You I'd know, like just... a little bit of time in the South Pacific. Oh, oh exactly. Some beach right. time. Idea. <laughs> yeah. I'll be um, searching slash snorkeling. Slash. Uh, yeah. Like the uh, conferences that you go to? Correct. <laughs> 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 Well, I think since the uh, ex, ex, uh, ex, expedition, expedition that's the word I was looking for, thank you, uh, has concluded, yeah. uh, I think we would have heard something had they found anything concrete, and uh, the documentary will be something of a letdown. Uh, but there you go. Yeah. Did you see what yeah, Liz said? A conference in the South Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that sounds lovely to me. I don't know about y'all. So if National Geographic wants to throw a little money this way uh, to support the podcast and our efforts in um, trying to search for you know, some more hard Well, it would be nice to go and do a plane tail from the actual place. Reporting live on a, location. Yeah, reporting live, yeah. From Amelia Earhart's wrecked airplane. That you know, we haven't, cool. we haven't decided yet what our big meetup for next year or location is. Oh, there it's you go. apparently going to be Nikumaroro. See, I'm not the only one that has trouble. Nikumaro. Wow, that just does not roll off the tongue. It doesn't. Nikumaroro. Yeah, that's the Niku. Niku. Yeah, that works. Ish. I like. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a great location for. I'm sure it's. There's some lovely resorts on that island, and it looks pretty. I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's anything at all on that island, actually. You need a float plane. I don't know someone with a float plane license, though. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I have a feeling that's probably not a very pleasant place to spend much time. It's probably full of like insects will eat you. And oh, actually, they have these huge crabs, these coconut crabs. Hmm. Uh, that they think that may have played a part in the disappearance of, of uh, really? Earhart and uh, Noonan. Yeah, 
that these things are like, I mean, like three foot, you know, leg spans or whatever you call it. Oh my goodness. Big old crabs. Yeah. I don't think I want to spend delicious. much time. Yeah. They probably taste Crab good, leg. but they probably hurt when if they, you, if, if they don't eat you first. Yeah, exactly. People eating crabs. Are you joking? No. And I don't mean people eating crabs. I mean people <laughs> eating crabs. People eating crabs. People eating crabs. Yeah. Yeah, eating. I know. I think that they actually do. I don't know if they actually kill the person I, first or they just are we're scavengers. We're definitely going to get feedback about how wrong all this information is. <laughs> what? We're never uh, wrong. Come on. As long Fell as any right half off, of it's wrong, Right off that fine. 50% cliff. Just <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. There was something that Dana was uh, telling me about the other day that uh, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, Jeff, I'm trying to keep you. Above fifty percent. Oh, I think it was we t- we had talked about the um, the uh, incident on the the MD eighty series airplane at uh, and I called it Willow Grove. It was Ro- Willow Run. I think we corrected that during the show. I think Liz corrected that for me. But uh, I, I mentioned that it was the control tab um, control rod for the control tab that had jammed and the control tab wasn't working. It was actually the elevator itself. The control tabs were actually working and were free, but the elevator itself is what was jammed. So just to make sure that we get that uh, corrected there, I should have started off the show with that. But um, so now we're back to it around 50%, I think. So thank you, Dana. Approximately. I just Approximately. pulled up some images of these giant coconut crabs. Those are big, aren't they? Um, yeah, that's they are large. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they it's don't look like they're very friendly. Species of terrestrial hermit crab and the largest land living arthropod. There you go. So there you go. Yeah. So the thinking maybe if if uh, Earhart and Noonan died on that island, that uh, the those crabs would have taken care of, like moving. Yeah, their- and I, I don't know that anyone's actually searching for, uh, you know, physical evidence of their remains. I think it's more the aircraft and yeah, that's what that the uh, of, yeah what the what the Nautilus was looking for, I believe. Sure. Okay. Well, moving on. Uh, Item three, passenger Mike. He says, I consider myself an emu, a large non-flying animal, (laughs) or more appropriately, a PM, which stands for passenger monitoring. Most of my time on aircraft is for work traveling around uh, Australia and New Zealand. The preferred carrier is the white bird with the red V on the tail. I stopped flying the one that has a picture of Skippy on it after their management refused to recognize the endeavors of the crew of QF-72. Sorry, Captain Nick. Also, not a fan of the bus company product. Oh, well. I know that's going to be disappointing to Nick. Nick doesn't have favorites anymore. It's fine. My my heart is broken for you. (laughs) What else could I say? I know. I can tell. I can hear it. Uh, whilst yeah. I love aviation and have been around it most of my life, I have never sat in the front seats. I came across your podcast by accident. I was looking for something to fill the void on my daily 90-minute drive to the office. And on those occasions when doing sectors, let's see if I can get these, Sydney to Perth and Sydney to Christchurch, Auckland. There is only so much work that can be done on a laptop or dialogue with crew. Anyway, or anyhow, thanks for the hours of comic and informative relief the team has offered. Now, the big question. Do you sell APG coffee mugs? And where do I buy them? 
I can then legitimately join the coffee club. Yay. At nearly 60, I find that hoodies aren't really my thing. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Everyone looks good in a hoodie. Come on, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I, Mike. I, I definitely look good in a hoodie. Yeah. So, uh, coffee mugs, huh? Hmm. No, we don't do that. Well, Bad you know enough. what? But Move I, on. I, that wouldn't, you know, I don't know. I think we'll have to look into that. I, I would imagine the, we could probably get those done on uh, Redbubble, Redbubble or Teespring, maybe even. I don't know. I think Redbubble would be a, yeah. I think you can do it there. Yeah, yeah, you can you can definitely do them on Redbubble. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll look into that, um, passenger Mike, and welcome to the APG community, and uh, hopefully you won't catch the uh, syndrome. Sounds like it's a little too late. He's yep. looking for coffee yep. bugs. Uh, uh, you on, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd start taking the pills that go around the ceiling <laughs> just as soon as you can. Yeah. Let's see. Make sure you're near a toilet, though. Why, hello there. My name is Miami Hick, and I'm here to talk to you today about an embarrassing subject that no one likes to talk about, APG syndrome. Do you have a constant pain in your neck from always looking up at airplanes? Have you tried to grow your own Captain Jeff mustache? Do you think of Miami Rick every time you hear a cricket? Think of Captain Nick when you hear a frog croak. Think of Dana whenever you eat Boston baked beans. Do you think of Dr. Steph whenever you get stuck with a needle? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you are suffering from APG syndrome. We'll suffer no more. Introducing Go Around the Ceiling. With only 36 daily doses of an easy to swallow pill, you can be free of your symptoms with Go Around the Ceiling. Talk to your doctor today and find out if Go Around the Ceiling is right for you. Like all medicine, Go Around the Ceiling has side effects which include headache, nausea, vomiting, stomach bleeding, bleeding from the ears, nose, and eyes, uncontrolled diarrhea, stomach cramps, yelling of the teeth, hair, and toenails, warts, hair loss, dry mouth, constipation, and stomach cramps. <laughs> and the Lots stomach cramps stomach are so cramps. bad. <laughs> it's mentioned twice. Three times. Three, three times? times? Oh, yeah. There's three times. <laughs> yeah. Did I mention stomach cramps? <laughs> Only 36 daily doses? Easy, yeah, 36 huh. daily doses, easy to swallow. <laughs> tablet capsule I forget which. <laughs> yeah they are i understand working on uh, uh something that's easier to uh we're working swallow. on an injection <laughs> yeah i'd be happy to administer those. yeah it is a vast injection though i mean yeah it really needle. stings yep. <laughs> burns but but it might be better than the syndrome right or yeah, 36 probably. pills a day yeah all right uh thank you uh passenger mike and welcome again to the uh to the community item four speaking of community we have jonathan um was this jonathan uh let's see he didn't put his last name here let me make sure i think it's the the, the jonathan that we know yes alexandratos we've had uh, several meetups with uh, jonathan in the new york area it's always a lot of fun okay he says, hi, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Dana, Captain Nick, and all the APGers of the world. Wow, he is very inclusive. Uh, I wanted I like to send in, in some feedback because I just spent the day at the TWA Hotel at New York City's JFK Airport. Did I cram enough acronyms in there? <laughs> yeah, actually, I made one of those acronyms. I actually said New York City. I should have said TWA, NYC's JFK. Anyway, often playwrights in the theater company I'm in, let's see, often playwrights in the theater company I'm in choose destinations for writing retreats. Today, one of my friends chose the TWA Hotel. 
indicating they had a quiet lounge perfect for writing. That was certainly true, but I couldn't resist spending a good chunk of my time wandering. It is so cool. The hotel has worked hard to preserve the 1960s ambiance of the space, putting the staff in TWA crew uniforms, locating check-in at one of the old ticket counters. The other ticket counters were food kiosks. I got a Eatero at one. The uh, gift shop was stocked with vintage-looking TWA gear, and the carpet was a, uh, kept a pristine TWA red, all while 60s music filled out the background. I went to the Connie parked outside, a beautiful Lockheed Constellation turned into a bar. Uh, the cockpit was left intact, with live ATC from JFK Tower being piped in. Though you have to pay 50 bucks only $20 on weekdays, to access the rooftop pool area, the host was kind enough to let me walk around for free for a few minutes to plane spot. The roof overlooks the runway, and I saw a couple of 747s land while I was up there. I've attached, uh, I've attached pictures of all of this to um, this bit of feedback. Feel free to post them if you like. I eventually settled in to do some writing, but it was hard with all the great sights to see. I'd encourage anyone who can visit to do so. Rooms run about $200 to $300 a night, but are less if you only want to book one for a four-hour stretch, say, on a layover, which they totally let you do. A bit of not-quite-family-show trivia that I'll try and make as PG-related as possible, but feel free not to read this part aloud. Okay, well, I'm just reading this for the first time, so let's see. Shall I do this? Has anybody read this? I've read it. It's fine. Okay. In planning for their uniforms in the 1960s, TWA apparently ordered special fabric that had TWA repeated in small letters all across the cloth. According to the exhibit, though, when TWA ordered the fabric, they forgot to leave a space between one TWA and the next. <laughs> I'll leave it to you. Funny, actually. I'll well, leave. that that reminds me of the old joke, the very old joke of the girl uh, wandering around the cabin saying, Excuse me, would you like some TWA coffee or some TWA tea? <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'll leave it to you to write TWA and then another TWA right next to it and read the results out loud so you can get the effect of what they did. Wasn't good. <laughs> so the fabric was scrapped before much aviation awkwardness would or could ensue. <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine having some of that? That would be a collector's item. Yes. Oh, as always, thanks for and thanks for making me laugh, Jonathan. That was great. As always, thanks for the great show and for always stoking the flames of my aviation curiosity. I talk to all my friends like I know a lot about planes, but the truth is I just repeat whatever I hear on the show. Maybe all that's your friends why. only have 50% aviation <laughs> yeah, well, don't tell. Yeah, it's 100%, Jonathan. Maybe that's why they're always asking me if your socks will actually be sliding on the ground if you forget to go around. <laughs> they will. <laughs> yeah, they will. definitely. Much love, Jonathan. Much love to you, Jonathan. Uh, thank you very much. Some great photos he took um, of the inside of the hotel. Uh, some great uh, uniforms without the TWAT fabric. And um, just TWA repeated, just TWA, yeah. and uh, the inside of the Connie and the outside of the Connie. Uh, that's awesome. So, I'll put a link to these photos in the show notes. 
So you all and I'm actually come. very excited because I have a stay booked at this hotel in Ooh. less than two weeks' time, just over two really? weeks' Good time. Good for you. Yeah. Brilliant. Wow. So I will be sure to take some pictures and post them. I'm very it's yeah. an overnight stay. So now okay. if you're a guest, surely mm-hmm. you don't need to pay extra. I don't think you pay extra pool. for the pool when you're a guest. Okay, uh, that's good. Yeah. And okay. hopefully the weather will be nice and I can make because it looks wonderful. I mean the pool's just situated with a great view and a bar and everything else. Yeah. Uh, which is where well, I'll probably spend ideal. quite a bit of time if I get the chance. What? You and a bar? What? At a, and a pool? And yeah, a pool? That doesn't sound like nah, me at all. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Jonathan. All right. Um, number five. Uh, let's see. Somebody else want to relieve me of my speaking duties and sure. take number five? I think you can only relieve yourself, mate. We can't do it for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Steph, okay. So this is from AH or should we say Alpha Hotel? That Whatever sounds a little bit like some other podcast. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Familiar. Um, he says, Hey guys, uh, Nick's old plane tale, uh, Nick's old pilot plane tale, sorry, from episode 387 was my favorite yet, covering the genesis of flight data recorders. You guys started to mention the ability for companies to monitor all pilot actions and conversations. I'm not sure where I heard this, but to my understanding, a chief pilot or some other manager can monitor every action the pilot makes in the flight deck by recording and transmitting flight parameters and instrument parameters back to the ground uh, so they can be analyzed. So my question is, do companies actually do this? And to what extent? For instance, if you are not making every effort to conserve fuel, would you get an email from the chief pilot asking you to explain this? Or if you are constantly having rough landings, can the chief pilot pull up a list of the bottom eight performers and just can them? Do you feel like Big Brother is always watching you in the cockpit? Take care, folks. Shiny side up. A.H. from Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, first of all, Alpha Hotel A.H., uh, we actually use names here if you if you want. <laughs> yeah. You can use your real name. You can be. Yeah. Unless, of course, maybe he's just trying to be anonymous, and that, that I don't blame him for that either, do you? No, no not at all. In <laughs> fact, Steph is definitely not my real name. Really? I'm just kidding. Oh. Okay, Steph. Yeah. Um, so I think that the person that you were talking with uh, basically uh, was talking about a system that we call uh, FOQA. And uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what that acronym stands for, but something about Flight Operations Quality Assurance or something like that. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Uh, there are on today's modern airplanes and even some of the non-modern airplanes like the airplane that I fly, uh, systems that monitor or, or uh, sensors that monitor certain systems and the actions uh, that these systems undergo and um, like levers that are uh, activated and speeds that uh, may have been exceeded, let's say, for a, a maximum operating parameter for, let's say, the speed of extending the flaps. And if you extend the flaps you know, above that speed, then that um, event is recorded. And um, the more modern the airplane, the more parameters are recorded. And so, yeah, there's a lot of this going on. In fact, some of it, uh, a lot of it is out there now being recorded, uh, recorded and reported in real time. So when the airplane's up there flying along, a lot of this data, right, uh, Captain Nick, is being sent. And I, I think it depends on the company and, you know, how they 
how they equip the airplane and also what their um, agreement um, with the, the pilot group is regarding what kind of data is collected, reported, and what happens and what, are they, what they do with that data. Yeah, you're quite right, Jeff. Uh, on, a, on an all-electric airplane like the Airbus is, of course, they can record an enormous amount of data if they want to, uh, and uh, it is downloaded routinely after every flight, all the data. And, of course, the airline can choose to have uh, certain parameters um, uh, recorded and transmitted on during a flight. So if there's a major fault or if there's a, a, a warning or alarm goes off, uh, the company will know about it. And they'll also know about lots of other things that might fail that the pilots aren't even told about, which is uh, an interesting situation when the engineers sometimes pitch up on their cars and say, have you noticed any uh, strange readings on number four, blah, blah? And, uh, you know, you've had no warnings, but they already know that there is a, an indication of a problem. Uh, it may be something that's not even shown to the pilots. It's an interesting world we live in. Um, so uh, ours is called a different name or was when I was uh, working for my company. But it's the same basic thing. Uh, and um, it's very important, I think, in a just environment that we like to think we work in that uh, this information uh, isn't used to target individual pilots because otherwise the unions, and if you, this is one of the reasons uh, all pilots should really be uh, belong to a strong union, um, needs to make sure that individuals are protected from being uh, overly uh, analyzed on the actions and the things they do. Now, what uh, our system did was to uh, automatically flag any excesses. Uh, so you're taxing too fast, uh, you uh, put flaps out too fast and got a warning, or you uh, didn't adhere to your stabilized approach criteria, uh, and various other uh, warnings that you were too fast on landing, too slow on landing, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, so uh, they went through a big uh, filter and piled out the other end and gave a general trend to the company as to what the mistakes that most of their pilots, one of the most common mistakes were being made or mistakes that might lead to a future accident. And that's really where it was all aimed. It was all aimed at flight safety and preventing. So all we did was we got lectures and we got talks from these people. Uh, our system was called Candid. So they would come along and say, right, well, Candid is showing us this. So this is a trend. We want to knock it on the head soon so next time you're making an approach pay particular care not to go into this area because if we continue to get uh, excesses in this area it could lead to uh, a bigger problem uh, and they would change the training of uh, the simulators to uh, knock uh, problems on the head nice and early so it was a very uh, proactive system and, and very safe system i used to like it very much indeed uh, now of course if one individual did something that was grossly um, in error, then we had a, a pilot who was uh, basically put in position by his peers, and he was called the Guardian. And he would be the only person who knew uh, who the actual pilot was, who was, or the crew were, who, who had this incident on their aircraft. Uh, and management would be prevented from knowing that. And the idea was that the Guardian would uh, uh, discreetly approach the crew and say, 
Well, we saw this happen on your aircraft. Uh, you know, uh, there's no jeopardy at all if you speak to me. I'm not part of the system. Do you want to talk it through with me? And generally, the Guardian was a very well-respected trading captain. And uh, if uh, he saw there was no uh, benefit in moving this on, then uh, he would go and report back to the company and say, no, that's dealt with. That's It was just a one-off and it won't happen again. But he would generally try and explain that uh, the company weren't looking to uh, reprimand or uh, deal uh, with this pilot in any disciplinary manner, and that it would be a great benefit to the company if they would raise an air safety report. That an air safety report then would allow the company to investigate the situation and uh, look to improve their training or perhaps give training to this individual crew to make sure it didn't happen again. So that was the basic aim of it all. Now, not every company is as honest and well run as mine. So there's no doubt that some companies uh, out there might try and use this to discipline, but that's not the aim of it. The aim of it is to just try and improve safety throughout. So uh, that's always been my opinion. If you do your best to fly the best you can and you don't make deliberate uh, or um, gratuitous errors, then uh, you're going to be well looked after. Uh, it's only those people who are a little bit paranoid, perhaps, I think, who get overly worried about being monitored. But it, yeah. it happens and it will continue to happen. It will be more intense monitoring in the future as more of these systems, including cameras and the flight deck, are, are developed. Yep. hope that wasn't too much of a monologue. No, that was great. I think you covered all the important uh, bases there. And uh, one of the important ones is, yeah, the, the technology is there. Yes, it's being recorded and reported. However, it's really what uh, is done with that data is the important thing. And safeguards from your union or your, what you call it, gatekeeper? Or, uh, yeah, we, we call him a guardian, but guardian. He, he was just someone that we put in there, the company. Right dealt with and he, any information that went to the company it was automatically de-identified and the company weren't allowed mm -hmm. to know ever who the crew was uh unless the crew themselves came forward right and the guardian was the sort of intermediary who would who would try and persuade the crew that it was in their best and the company's best interest if they did come forward and discuss it with them but um it became very difficult if uh it was something that the crew point blank didn't want to come forward. And I don't think I ever encountered that. Generally speaking, these things were dealt with and always in a very positive manner. As far as fuel use is concerned, we've heard about this over the years that I've been doing the show where certain airlines, and, and they don't need any kind of special um, monitors or sensors to figure out how much fuel is being burned on each flight because when you arrive, they know how much fuel you have in your tanks. And, <laughs> and how they're going to have to replace the uh, exactly. missing amount. Yeah. Right. So it's it's like common knowledge. and But I have heard of situations where certain carriers uh, put a lot of pressure on their pilots to kind of push things, uh, you know, like carry uh, less fuel than they probably should or they're comfortable with uh, carrying. And uh, I, fortunately, being a pilot at Acme Airlines, have never felt that kind of pressure. And if at any point I ever did feel that pressure, uh, just a call to the dispatcher would take care of adding whatever 
you know, additional fuel would make me feel comfortable. So I'm very fortunate that I work for a company that's very professional and, you know, listens to its pilots and uh, is um, very conservative when it comes to making sure that we don't, you know, stretch things too, uh, you know, too much. I can't say the same for my outfit. There was always a, a, a greater, they, they, they tried to educate the pilots to carry uh, what they consider to be sensible limits. Mm-hmm. And many of us believed that eventually that the allocated fuel on the flight plan went beyond what we considered to be a normal, uh, comfortable level. Um, so some pilots were in the habit of always putting on extra fuel. Some pilots did it when they just thought it was justified. And in a lot of cases, uh, they didn't need that fuel. Mm-hmm. So in most cases, they didn't need that fuel. I was kind of between the two. Uh, I always felt as soon as I saw a reason to put extra fuel, since there was no fat left on our flight pans, I always put extra fuel on. But on the other hand, if everything looked uh, you know, honky dory, uh, then I would happily go with flight plan fuel. And if I had to divert, then, well, that wasn't my fault because, uh, you know, whatever. Right. And the company would absorb that. But funnily enough, as uh, we picked up more routes uh, that needed to link with other airlines, uh, the company became very concerned about diversions. And we often found that we were given a considerable amount of fat in our fuel there to cope with a bit of holding rather than risk a diversion which would disrupt an awful lot of people's traveling plans very expensive exactly Mm -hmm. and over the years uh uh, my fuel decisions sometimes i put on a lot of extra fuel uh if i felt it was necessary and often i didn't need it i was never once asked to explain myself so i always thought that was very good Uh, no one ever ever came to me and said I want you to justify why you put up that extra fuel on that flight. So I thought that was very good. I think that uh, you and I are, have been blessed to fly for companies that have a really strong safety culture. Yeah, I think you're right. So hopefully that answers your question. I mean, again, there's always, uh, if something can be abused, it will be. Um, but um, it's not our experience at uh, our companies. And uh, yeah. You know what we should do? This might I do. be a good point. Yes? Yeah. Well, I'll let you explain. I oh, think God, it's going to be the best part of the show. Yeah. Which is, of course, this week's installment of the Old Pilot's Plane Tales. This one, 42nd Boyd. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. 42nd Boyd. As a military aviator, he was exceptional. From a starting point that had him at a disadvantage, when the combat lessons started, 40 seconds was how long it took him to get behind you for the kill. His skill at air combat was legendary, but it was far from his only talent or nickname come to that. At various times in his career, he was also known as Genghis John, a reference to his confrontational manner. The Mad Major, for the intensity of his commitment to his beliefs. 
and the ghetto colonel because of his Spartan lifestyle and his habit of shunning personal wealth and private gain for service to his country. The man was John Richard Boyd, a fighter pilot who would never claim an operational kill, but whose theories concerning warfare would make him one of the most influential military minds of the 20th century. He was born on the 23rd of January 1927 in Erie, Pennsylvania. While still at junior high school, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps and, after his graduation, in the last months of the Second World War, he completed his basic training and skill training as an aircraft turret mechanic. For the next few years, Boyd served in Japan, where he attained the rank of sergeant, and he continued to serve in the Air Force Reserve until he finished college. He graduated from the University of Iowa in 1951 with a bachelor's degree in economics, and later earned a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering from Georgia Tech. Boyd started his Air Force career in ROTC, and by 1953, he had completed his pilot training and was serving in Korea as an F-86 pilot. By the time he was able to go on operational missions, the conflict was near its conclusion and he was only able to fly as a wingman, so he never had an opportunity to fire his weapons in anger. This didn't, however, prevent his career from progressing as his skill and tactical acumen had been recognised. When he returned to the United States, he was invited to attend the Air Force's prestigious school for fighter pilots, the Fighter Weapons School. He passed the course at the top of his class and was asked to remain on the staff as a flight instructor. It was in this role that he gained the reputation of being able to best his students in a mere 40 seconds. His favourite manoeuvre for this contest was to place his student behind his wing line and then fly a high G barrel roll, killing his forward progress and forcing his adversary in front. Once there, he would call the kill, guns, guns, guns. Fans of Boyd laud him for this, although his detractors often wonder why an instructor defeating his students using an off-repeated manoeuvre is noteworthy, much less a point worth bragging about. The fact was that he was an exceptionally skilled pilot. That was never questioned. This diversity of praise and condemnation was something that would mark his life. For many, his achievements and original thinking are so worthy of praise that they will hear nothing bad said against him. Others are less convinced. However you consider him, dear listener, there is little doubt that he was going to challenge orthodoxy, including fighter tactics and the theory of how wars were to be fought, inspiring radically different opinions. He had the courage to state his views and defend them, regardless of the consequence. During the Korean War, although the F-86 Sabre was considered less capable than the MiG-15 that they fought, the Sabre had a 10-to-1 advantage in kills, 
although recent assessments show that figure to be closer to 5 to 1. Regardless of the numbers, Boyd thought he understood why the American forces had done so well. He believed it was down to two crucial advantages. Better visibility and a faster roll rate. He expanded his theory and developed his understanding of the mathematics behind it, and when his skill with numbers let him down, he taught himself calculus in his spare time. The key to victory, he believed, was not a plane that could climb faster or higher, but one that could begin climbing or change course quicker and get inside an adversary's time cycle loop, as he described it. He expanded this combat theory into a lecture that he delivered hundreds of times, teaching that it was the pilot who could assess a combat situation faster and then change the direction of his aircraft more quickly, who would end up winning. He was put in charge of the fighter school's academic section where he rewrote the school's tactics manual, working out the mathematical formulas that explained the aerial manoeuvres that fighter pilots would need to fly, and led to his 1960 report, Aerial Attack Study, a Bible of air-to-air combat that is studied by many to this very day. Boyd completed his tour at Nellis and enrolled at Georgia Tech to study for his second degree. Talking about his aerial attack study, he said, One day I'll have a breakthrough on this. And that's exactly what happened. In 1961, Boyd was having a beer and a burger with a fellow student one night while studying for an exam in thermodynamics. He was talking about being a fighter pilot in Korea and what it was like to fly an F-86 down MiG Alley. Suddenly, what he had learned about thermodynamics meshed with all the knowledge he had gained as a fighter pilot and he had something of an epiphany that became his energy maneuverability EM theory. The idea at its simplest was to devise a method to determine the specific energy of an aircraft. If he could work out a way to accurately quantify the performance of an aircraft, then the data could be used to mathematically compare different aircraft types. In the beginning, the entire thrust of his theory was to understand the full performance envelope of an American aircraft, with the goal of developing new tactics for aerial battles. Then he realised that if EM could quantify the performance of an American aircraft, it could, for the first time, do the same for threat aircraft, such as the MiGs and Sukhois flown by the Soviets. Finally, if EM could quantify aircraft performance, why couldn't he use the theory to design fighter aircraft? The idea could change the whole direction of military aviation. In the past, when pilots thought of manoeuvring, they thought strictly in terms of airspeed. Good pilots intuitively understood energy, although they couldn't articulate it. In World War II, for instance, they knew never to get in a turning fight with the Japanese Zero. In Korea, never turn with a MiG. Now, thanks to EM, they could look at a chart and know exactly where an aircraft excelled and where they had an advantage over an adversary. 
They could see how many Gs they could pull at a given altitude, what their turn performance would be, and where they had good excess energy. Boyd's ideas were revolutionary, and the senior officers of the day were populated by a military establishment gripped by the Eisenhower Doctrine and the massive retaliation approach to war. Bigger, higher, faster, further was the mantra for aircraft design. A constantly airborne fleet with the ability to deliver even bigger nuclear bombs on targets across the globe. He wasn't helped by his abrasive attitude when talking to those who stood in the way of his modern concepts. He said, you've got to challenge all assumptions. If you don't, what is doctrine on one day becomes dogma forever. Boyd was guided in his work by one simple principle. He wanted to give pilots a fighter that would outmaneuver the enemy. He knew it must have a high thrust-to-weight ratio if it were to have neck-snapping acceleration. He knew it had to have lots of wing in order to manoeuvre quickly into the firing envelope. It had to have the energy to disengage, go for separation, then come back into the fight with an advantage. And it had to have the fuel to penetrate deep into enemy territory and sustain a prolonged fight. If some of the Air Force's most senior officers were closing their ears to this maverick, there were others who immediately saw the value of what Boyd had to say. Assigned to the Pentagon in 1964, Boyd became an important figure in a movement that started in response to the $400 hammers and other headline excesses of the Defence Department spending and soon expanded to question the need for many hugely expensive weapons systems. Although he had allies in the Pentagon, Congress and business, Boyd's ideas often went against the grain of a military-industrial bureaucracy devoted to the procurement of the most advanced, most expensive and, not coincidentally, the aircraft most profitable to the industry. Whilst he had his opponents, he built up strong support from men such as Colonel Everest Riccioni and Pierre Spray, Ray Leopold, Chuck Spinney, Jim Burton and Tom Christie as well. They were to become part of the fighter mafia, and it was their influence in the Pentagon that went a long way to see Boyd's ideas accepted by the mainstream of Air Force policy men. His concepts gained ground, and by the time I was flying the Phantom in the late 70s, it was part of my world as well. I had no idea who gave rise to the myriad of graphs held in my tactical manuals, but in the quiet of a study room, I could open the big safe that held our most secret books and sign them out. Opening the pages, I could imagine myself in combat, with a MiG-21 fishbed, or perhaps a Sukhoi Su-17 fitter, and there were the energy diagrams of both types, side by side. I could see where I might have an advantage in turning ability, G, or perhaps acceleration, what height was best to fight, or the worst come to that. These manuals gave me the key to fighting my aircraft against Allied aircraft as well, and I went into every engagement with the numbers in my mind so I knew what I had to do with my aircraft to prevail. 
Boyd's theories went a long way to influence the next generation of fighter aircraft that the USAF were to demand. The fighter mafia talked a reluctant Air Force into building the F-16 and A-10, small, relatively cheap, yet highly effective aircraft that were temporary departures from the trend towards more expensive, complex weapons. Boyd also tried to have the F-15 project altered to shrink the aircraft and have a lot of its sophisticated technologies reduced or even gutted completely with the aim of making it more suited to air-to-air combat. Not all of his ideas were necessarily aimed in the right direction, as anyone who has faced a wall of eagles will attest. After leaving the Air Force as a colonel in 1975, Boyd began a study of historical trends in military success, and through his studies he perhaps made his greatest mark. He taught himself much through reading. He worked through accounts of battles, starting with the Peloponnesian War of Sparta and Greece. On his Air Force pension, he lived modestly, working from a small book-crammed apartment. He presented his findings in briefings, which came in varying lengths, starting at four hours. Boyd refused to discuss his views with those who would not sit through a whole presentation. To him, they were, in his opinion, amateurs. To those who listened, he offered a world view in which crucial military qualities, adaptability and innovation, grew from moral strengths and other warrior virtues. Yes-men, careerists, by-the-book thinkers, and the military's budget-orientated culture of procurement were his greatest hates. It was during this period that Boyd came up with, arguably, his most important and wide-reaching legacy. He developed a decision-making cycle that allowed military combatants to make important choices faster than their opponents, thereby gaining the upper hand. It was simply known as the OODA loop, and it stands for Observation, use your senses to get data. Orientation, analyze the data based on your situation. Decision, determine a course of action based on your perspective. Action, play out the decision. The OODA loop has become an important concept in litigation, business, law enforcement, sport and military strategy, to name just a few. It has been described as a way to explain the nature of surprise and shaping operations in a way that unifies gestalt physiology, cognitive science and game theory in a comprehensive theory of strategy. Boyd continued to influence and advise the military, particularly the U.S. Marine Force in the wake of their experiences in Vietnam, and more recently, Dick Cheney during the Gulf War. Whilst many valued his opinions and theories, former fighter pilot and USAF Chief of Staff General Merrill McPeak summarized the opposing view. Boyd was highly overrated, he opined. In many respects, he was a failed officer, and even a failed human being. He was the type of person who challenged authority and fought for what he believed. He was also the kind of person that was so profoundly insecure that he stalked and physically assaulted people 
who he perceived had not shown him proper respect. If Boyd had been less pugnacious, less cocksure, and if he had not end-run the system constantly and played by the rules, he might have had an easier path. But then he may not have been so successful either. Revolutions are not started or won by moderates. They need zealots committed to the cause. Boyd was passionately committed to being the best he could be. He was devoted to the Air Force and its mission, air superiority with the best aircraft, training the best pilots, and developing the best military strategy. To fly, fight, and win. He just happened to be convinced that the Air Force had it all wrong. Understandably, the Air Force did not appreciate being told so. Put it this way, how many active-duty colonels do you think could get away with burning a hole in a general's tie with his cigar? Yes, that is one of the many things he did and got away with. Boyd died of cancer in 1997 and was recognised shortly after his death with the naming of a building at Nellis Air Force Base for him. Colin Gray, the distinguished British academic and the most quoted author about strategy since Clausewitz, bestowed an eulogy on Boyd, praising his concept of the Ouda Loop, saying that it may appear too humble to merit categorization as a grand theory, but that is what it is. It has an elegant simplicity an extensive domain of applicability and contains a high quality of insight about strategic essentials, such that its author well merits honourable mention as an outstanding general theorist of strategy. Boyd has been studied over the years at various USAF professional military education schools, most notably as part of the curriculum of the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. Wow, another fascinating plain tale. And Nick, you had asked me before we started recording if I had ever heard of this guy, and uh, I haven't. But of course, I didn't fly fighters. So I would imagine that if I did, I would have heard of Boyd. Well, uh, I think you need to um, do more than just fly fighters because uh, I, although I studied uh, energy maneuver uh, graphs and uh, diagrams and, and the product of, of his mind uh, were there available to us and in our tactics manuals, I had no idea oh. who came up with the concept. So um, th this was a new one to me, and I have to thank uh, Walt uh, and Ty. Now, I'm going to crucify Walt's surname. It's uh, Salmanu, uh, I think, but uh, it's a difficult spelling. Uh, Ty Tolman is a lot easier. Thank you, Ty, for having such a nice name. Um, so, yeah, uh, they they came with a couple of suggestions, but both of them uh, suggested uh, that I uh, read the uh, Find a Pilot Who Changed the Art of War. And people have uh, really lauded uh, Boyd um, as being uh, in, you know, amongst the, the top tacticians and the top military minds ever. Um, uh, you know, remember that uh, amazing uh, Chinese 
man who uh, wrote about uh, the theory of war. I think it's Sung Tao or something. Oh, God, someone's going to crucify me for get, <laughs> forgetting that. Um, the Art of War. Uh, mm -hmm. Put him at that level. And I think uh, there are people who would uh, not agree with that, but there are certainly amongst those of his uh, great followers who would. And it was an interesting um, task to write a plain tale about him. And I hope I've treated him fairly because uh, not everyone was happy to have such a um, maverick in the military. Uh, it, it's almost like he was um, a, a square peg in a round hole in the military. Uh, and even afterwards, although he carried on to uh, advise some very uh, influential people, um, he, you know, he to his dying day, he has very, very hardline attitudes towards how um, aircraft uh, should be built, how we should go about combat, and he expanded that into the whole theory of warfare. So uh, it was interesting, interesting uh, thing. Uh, he, for example, suggested that the uh, F the project that eventually became the F-15 shouldn't have a radar. And I'm going, uh, really? That's one of its, its strengths, isn't it? It's radar. Well, exactly. Uh, and he said, no, no, it's too big, it's too heavy, and uh, we should be going for a lightweight, uh, um, much more maneuverable option. And I think there's a lot of Eagle drivers out there <laughs> who are saying, well, uh, actually, the, the the radar is one of the things that gives us our enormous tactical advantage. Mm -hmm. And but there are other people who might point at the next generation, the latest generation of fighters. The, for example, the F thirty five, who say this vastly complex mm -hmm. and expensive piece of kit. Uh, pardon me, proves part of what Boyd was saying. Well, so does the F sixteen and the A ten. I mean, both great examples of. You know, inexpensive. I mean, you know, relatively, compared, yes, relatively you're speaking. right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, small, lightweight. You know, for the most part, not big, do a great gargantuan things, and they do. You know, they're great, great for what their mission is. Absolutely. Uh, and then you look at things like the Spirit, which is an amazing airplane, but you can only afford a few of them. Uh, yeah. They're just hugely complex, and and uh, you know, they just soak up the. The money you have is it better to have something uh more numerous that's cheaper or just a few things that are incredibly expensive and so valuable you don't really want to fly them you know it's not um it's not surprising to me that some of the names that you mentioned uh who were who said some not nice things about colonel boyd um and i'm th i know of them and their reputations and it's not a surprise at all that they would look at somebody like Colonel Boyd as uh, unfavorably as they did. But many of us, especially those of us who ended up getting out and didn't make a career of it, uh, were the kind of people that looked to people like Colonel Boyd as the true leaders. Yeah, very, very interesting. And uh, they think one of the main reasons he only rose to the rank of colonel was because he managed to tread on too many toes exactly right on mm. the way. Yep. He, he was not a yes man, and he hated people that were. And the, but and the budget based uh, procurement system is just a mess. <laughs> it is just, I have so many stories that I could tell you that would just, you just shake your head and go, really? And you know what? It's it's still that way and probably will budget be forever. Based procurement. Yeah. yeah. That sounds right. like it would be 
yeah. difficult to deal with. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, but, very uh, fascinating. Uh, uh, glad to have learned mm-hmm. about Colonel Boyd. Yeah. Thanks very much indeed. I, uh, I, I took a lot away from that as well. So thanks very much to uh, Walt and Ty. Teaching yourself calculus. Wow. That's uh, obviously a very smart man. Yeah. I listened. I heard that and I was like, no. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I don't uh, love math. And that was. Yeah. yeah. Very much. Uh, is it a didiatic? Is that the right word? Didiatic education? Oh, didactic uh, me- seems- memories. Yeah. Well, no, it's, no. it's self-taught. Oh. Self-taught. Oh, self-taught. But, uh, okay. Yeah. Is that uh, a self-taught man, and he he spent a lot of his life learning and reading, uh, and he educated himself. Yeah, uh, and a great deal of uh, oh. the concepts he had came from all inside his autodidactic. Ah, there you go. Thank you. That's it. Yeah, okay. brilliant. Uh, anyway, it's getting on a bit for me, and you I should have go to a bed. busy day. I have a photo shoot uh, tomorrow, and then I have a game of bowls in the evening and a barbecue. So well, I think nice. you should go and get Sounds some sleep, like sir. A full oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the show, and uh, I'll catch you next week. All right. Great having Take you, care, Nick. Nick. Take Good care, Nick. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Clear skies. All right. With that, um, Steph, I think that we mm-hmm. can uh, – looks like my – Recorder is continuing to hang in there. It's recording. So it recorder is still is recording. recording. No more er- uh, error messages. And obviously the, uh, the browser is still going. Just a while longer. Yeah. We're nearly there. We're almost there. And uh, I think we should continue. I don't know. Have you? Did you see this stuff? This is I pretty did. remarkable. <laughs> I did. Um, a Saudi man accidentally bought two Airbus A350-1000s while searching for scale models of the type. The man, an investor in the energy sector, so obviously a pretty rich man, was searching for a birthday gift for his son, who is a big fan of aviation. The man says he called Airbus for the model planes, but his lack of English made communication difficult. They asked so many questions about interior and exterior. I I just thought they uh, make very accurate scale models. Uh, the price tag of roughly 329 million pounds, or euros, I guess. Is that a euro or a pound sign right there? Uh, hold on. Uh, uh, I moved to the wrong. That is a euro sign. Okay, 329 million euros. Did not seem to bother the man. <laughs> I got lost in currency conver- uh, conversions. I thought it was a bit expensive, but still reasonable. Uh, the man paid with his American Express. <laughs> right. <laughs> And a few months later, Airbus He's called. got one of those black cards, <laughs> you know, must, right? That really special American Express card. Yes. Um, Just put it on the Amex. Very high credit line. Um, yes. uh, the man paid with his American Express. And a few months later, Airbus called to tell him that the planes are ready for delivery. And they asked me, who will fly it? I thought it was a joke. The Saudi man decided to keep one of the planes and gifted the other one to his cousin. Oh, very generous of him. Yeah. Now, of course, you probably have suspected that um, this is not an accurate article that uh, Gus sent us. Gus sent us from uh, from Gus from Argentina sent us a link to this. He says the uh, this morning I got a suspiciously funny news article about a Saudi man who accidentally bought two Airbus A350s for his son. <laughs> Uh, Doing some quick research, I discovered where this article came from, and it is from a website called Thin Air Today. Very funny stuff. I hope you can share some of the articles with the community, but probably there are some APG members that may have already seen it. And uh, 
Anyways, it's changing subjects. I, I'm almost finishing my commercial pilot training. Woo-hoo. So, yeah, I'll be joining the club very soon at the age of 42. Ah, such a young man. Mm-hmm. Cheers from the southern part of America. Not the country, the continent. Gus from Argentina. Now, is Gus the guy that uh, had the airplane uh, dismantled and sent to him? Or- yeah. Yeah, at yeah Sun and Fun I or believe something? so. Or maybe yes. it wasn't Sun and Fun, but it was somewhere I'm kind important. of forgetting some of the details, but yeah, yes. Yeah, me too. That, that I think this is the, the same Gus from Argentina, mm-hmm. so haven't heard from Gus in a while. Uh, good to hear from you, sir, and thank you for sharing the uh, funny article. I do enjoy good satire. Yes. So I'll have to check out this website. All right. <laughs> kind of reminds me Actually, of I'm just, just reading through some of the headlines on their uh, their page, and they seem pretty <laughs> amusing. Um, Carter Boswell, um, wrote in and he said, I almost fell off my chair in episode 388 about hail when captain Nick mentioned the seven little guys with hammers get in and repair the damage. <laughs> How classic. We did. We did too. We Carter. Did too yeah. <laughs> that was good. Nobody was expecting, not even us. We weren't expecting no. that. Uh, one of the weird things about hail damage on an airplane, specifically a general aviation airplane, is that there can be hidden damage where the rivets are concerned. We can all see the dents in the upper surfaces of the aircraft, but if the hail is big enough, it can weaken the strength that the rivets provide. Uh, this will probably mean reskinning the entire upper surfaces of the wings, etc. This is in contrast to an airplane that gets hail damage while in the air. All that damage, of course, is going to be on the leading edges of the fuselage and wings. Uh, in the hailstorm uh, described in this episode, I don't see how mechanics can repair the damage to a transport category airplane other than to do an inspection. Of course, the hail damage to the transport airplane usually doesn't amount to much. Enjoy the pod- Enjoying the podcast. Thanks for putting all your or that work into it, Carter Boswell. Now, I will say that this hail damage to the aircraft, the transport category aircraft uh, at Billings, occurred when they were just sitting overnight i think on the ramp they weren't right so it wasn't in flight it wasn't specifically leading edge right it uh, damage but definitely more of the upper surface right uh surfaces i should say and apparently it's the kind of thing that they can repair because uh in both cases i think it was frontier and alaska they both repaired whatever damage that they found mm-hmm. apparently all right but make sure you look for those, um, those, uh, yeah. If you see little seven guys. little guys out there with hammers, you know, uh, hail damage. Definitely. Yeah. Most likely. <laughs> I wonder if they get, uh, are they kind of like the uh, roof, roof repair, uh, folks when there's a big hailstorm? It's like, Ooh, time to go to work. <laughs> yeah. Let's go make some money. <laughs> and people will see them walking down the street. Ah, must've been a hailstorm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert writes in wind shear ahead, pull up. I, ho- I overheard this as the pilots were going through their checklist today on my 757-300 home to Atlanta, where there are some scattered storms building, and I remembered the Delta L-1011 crash at DFW many years ago that, if I'm not mistaken, led to these kind of warning systems. Yes, that was one of the catalysts, actually. Uh, also, on your recent episode, y'all were talking about these same summer storms, so I wanted to write in and ask about these systems in their current-slash-past forms. On the planes you all fly, have you seen them in action, or if not, what kind of conditions would they be triggered in? Also, have they been updated lately, or do you feel confident that possibly older technology is solid for what it needs to do? 
Thanks as always, and maybe we'll cross paths soon. Robert in Mayretta. Um, yeah, the uh, that Delta L-1011 crash was one of the big catalysts for wind shear uh, warning and um, uh, reactionary systems on board airplanes. And most airplanes have uh, reactive wind shear systems installed. I think it actually is probably a requirement. I mean, a transport uh, category airplanes. Not sure about the corporate world. Uh, and I'm sure not GA because these Definitely are expensive not GA. systems. No, it does not exist on most on any GA aircraft that I'm aware of. So. Then the Mad Dog um, has both a reactive wind shear system and a predictive wind shear system. And the predictive wind shear system is um, uh, basically uh, a radar, an enhanced radar mode where it scans and looks for signatures and and um, steep gradients for uh, uh, precipitation that could possibly be in the path of the airplane that could possibly. So what's the what's the difference in the warning that you get? Because presumably you get different well, warnings for predictive um, versus predictive would be reactive. like wind shear ahead, wind shear Wait, okay. ahead. Um, but if you if you get a wind shear, wind shear, wind shear, a three, you have to have you have to hear bo- all three of those. Um, in a row uh, with some other um, warning lights that are flashing and, you know, red lights. And, and then you'll Bells actually, you'll see yeah. some guidance. Uh, your flight director bar, uh, your flight director system goes into the wind shear um, avoidance maneuver or escape uh, mode and starts giving you uh, inputs. And that's one of the things that the pilot monitoring uh, looks for when you're, uh, when the wind shear uh, system is activated uh, and he'll or she uh, will say you have guidance. And then you can go to looking at the uh, the pitch bar and the uh, basically it's going to roll you wings level. So the, the, the lateral is not going to really give you information. It's just that pitch bar that you're looking for. And that will keep you uh, on the edge of your performance to, uh, you know, escape the, uh, the wind shear. Um, but um, now the, uh, the mad, the 90, the MD 90 at Acme uh, does not have the predictive system. It just has the reactive. Hmm. Okay. And I'm not sure how many airplanes out there have both predictive and, and uh, reactive systems, but I think they all, all the transport category airplanes, I think are required to have the, the reactive wind shear systems. And, uh, and in terms of go arounds for wind shear, if you get that, the three wind shear, um, mm-hmm. a warning, definitely going around in those cases. Oh Yeah. Required, oh, yeah. yeah. And in fact, uh, anytime. Uh, How about the predictive one? Because there, there are really some, might. the predictive, no. Um, no. Well, right. it's there's some conditions that gotcha. uh, it's, gotcha. it's like too hard to go into all the details about exactly this is when you do this and that and this. But um, the, uh, the airports themselves, a lot of the airports have low level wind shear alert systems, LWAS, mm-hmm. I think they call it, um, that have basically, you know, towers positioned around the perimeter of the airport uh, and that are constantly looking at wind speeds, wind directions, and then comparing them with all the other sensors. And if they get like a pretty significant disparity in the wind direction and or wind speeds, then they'll issue a low, excuse me, a low level wind shear alert. And anytime, you know, you, you get one of those kind of low level wind shear alerts, uh, you are required to go around. Um, Do you get a display or readout of what the no. actual gain or loss? No. That like, will be something that the uh, controller advises. He'll say, okay. you know, low-level wind shear alert. Um, and I don't know the exact verbiage, but they'll usually say, you know, 20-knot loss or whatever. They'll they'll um, mm-hmm. give you some of those 
key parameters. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of, I mean, uh, of course the, uh, the Delta L1011 was not the first to experience, um, a, a tragedy when it came to wind shear. In fact, I still remember, uh, when I was uh, a young person, must've been about 13 years old, uh, the, uh, people that lived across the street from us in Mobile, um, he was a, uh, uh, coast guard pilot. And, uh, but he was a passenger on board, I believe it was an Eastern Airline 727 landing at, at the time was called, um, oh, what was, uh, the, the airport before they changed the name to John F. Kennedy. Anyway, it was before they changed oh, it to John F. Kennedy. Um, um, now all goodness. of a sudden I can't think of the darn name. Someone in the chat room. Yeah. Somebody in the chat room will, uh. <laughs> It's just like just on the tip of my tongue. I just can't think of it. But anyway, before it was the name was changed, um, I believe it was an Eastern Airlines 727 uh, flying an approach into Kennedy. Idlewild. Uh, Idlewild. Liz Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Um, flying into Idlewild and crashed because of wind shear. And uh, that was one of the first major uh, tragedies, uh, crashes due to wind shear. And there were a couple others. And then, of course, the the 1011 going down in Dallas, Fort Worth. That was a, a wind shear, but a, a special condition called a microburst that uh, made it even worse. Mm -hmm. um, but all of those things combined basically uh, led to the development of um, reactive wind shear systems in, aboard airplanes and also low-level wind shear alert systems at airports. And so nowadays it's uh, you know much safer when it comes to, and we're much more aware of wind shear um, activity mm -hmm. yeah some of the um bad thunderstorms we had here last week mm -hmm. um, i think i mentioned just as i was driving back towards town watched uh, the uh lufthansa a350 mm -hmm. go around and it was for wind shear and i think they said plus 30 gain okay so yeah pretty, that's significant pretty significant wind shear yeah yeah anything more than 15 knots is yeah significant um and so what basically the way the system works uh, is that they have, you know, a few accelerometers on board the airplane that are, you know, we don't have any displays of what they're sensing, you know, vertical or horizontal mm -hmm. um, accelerations. But it's a, a system and an algorithm that knows that when it sees these parameters that you're very likely in a, in a wind, wind shear situation. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think that technology is so interesting and obviously so helpful mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure it saved um, a lot of lives over the years absolutely all right uh thank you robert hopefully our paths will meet yes sir um i believe we have time to continue with at least uh, we've uh, got two more in the that's it so yeah, what do you think can, can we do it okay maybe we probably do it all right um deanna in uh, burlington north carolina not far from elon uh, writes, good afternoon. I just listened to this on VAS Aviation and wondered if you heard about it. Could you offer your expert analysis? Well, I'll give you my analysis. I don't know if it's expert or not. <laughs> uh, is this all Cathay's fault for not expeditiously ex uh, executing the turn as directed by ATC or did ATC get them too close? How dangerous was this? Have any of you gotten a TCAS RA? Yes, I think we all have, actually. Um, okay, and I meant to record some of this. So this is from a YouTube video at Vast Aviation. I'm going to play it over here on this machine, and let me know if you can hear this. I can hear it. Okay. 
892 heavy, reduce speed of 180, turn left heading 010. Left heading 010, speed 180, cap 892. At 391, reduce speed of 180. Go to 180, United 391. Air Canada 566, turn left heading 100. 100, Air Canada 566. At 391, the King Earth uh, sighted behind you. He's for the parallel runway. He has you in sight. He's following you. At the bridge, contact us at the palace is open about. Alright, power bridge and uh, we'll try to keep a uh, lookout for him. Okay. I should pause this and let you know what, uh, give you a little bit of a setup here. This was uh, going into San Francisco International Airport. Uh, they were operating on the parallel west runways. I believe it's 28. Um, let me look at my notes here. Um, runway, um, yeah, 28, I believe. Yeah, 28 left and 28 right which is a very common setup for arrivals into San Francisco International. And if the if there are visual meteorological conditions, VMC, uh, they run uh, very closely spaced parallel visual approaches to these runways. Uh, because the runways are still pretty close to each other, they, they um, require a special procedure. So uh, let's go back to the video. And uh, here's some more ATC and pilot interaction. Captain 92 Heavy, verify your turn. Uh, yeah, what's the heading again? Uh, make a sharp turn heading 330. Sharp 330, turn. 330, Captain 92. Verify your turning. Okay, so Cathay is on the um, getting set up for the uh, approach to 28 left on the left side. And uh, coming in from more uh, more northerly direction, northeasterly direction, um, being set up for the two eight right is the United fifteen fifteen. Got the ninety two heavy. Continue left turn heading three one zero. Intercept the two eight left localizer. Ten three one zero. Intercept the two eight left localizer. Got the ninety two heavy. Got the ninety two heavy. Track three o'clock two miles four thousand eight hundred. The point seven thirty seven. Use the two eight right. Do you have the sight? Uh, visual, okay, you asked him if he had him in sight, and he said visual. So in other words, yes, we see him. Cafe 92 has maintained a visual separation to set a maintain at 3,000. Let's say again, please, Cafe 92. Cafe 92 heavy, descend and maintain 3,000. Maintain visual separation with the traffic. Maintain 3,000, maintain visual separation, Cafe 892. By the way, on the uh, video itself, um, they're showing a uh, video of the radar screen and the actual um information tags for they always yeah they always do a nice job of really putting the so you can kind of see how this together. whole thing is kind mm -hmm. of being set up uh at one point when there was some silence uh it said uh there was a 400 foot separation between Cathay and united and uh, about two or three mile separation another point 500 foot vertical separation and about two or three miles which is not unusual at all for this approach, uh, visual approach into San Francisco. That is fifteen fifteen. The heavy was late in their turn. They've got you in sight now. They're going to slow to follow you inbound. Maintain one eight zero knots greater now to the bridge. Okay, sir. Yeah, he's crossing underneath us now for you out of fifteen fifteen. Affirmative. Their, their max speeds currently. They they will slow to follow you. Uh, just uh, maintain one eight zero knots greater so that you're number one. Contact tower now one two zero point five. One two zero five. Heavy, stay in 
Uh, we are now clear of conflict, Cafe uh, 892, or uh, disregard, we, are, we still have two cats already, and we're leveling off at 2,700, Cafe 892. Cafe 892 Heavy, do you want to proceed inbound with a visual approach? You're going to follow the traffic, he is ahead. We can continue visual at Cafe 92. Cafe 92 Heavy, reduce to your slowest practical as soon as possible, maintain the separation, follow the traffic, he's for the right, you are cleared, visual approach will make 28 left. Continue on a visual for 28 left, Cafe 92. Cafe 92 Heavy, if you need an S turn to stay behind the traffic, that is approved. Do not overtake, contact Texas with power to 0.5. Confirm with Cliff, we are left for 2 left, Cafe 92. Yes. Oh, you know, 15-15. Okay, sir, where's that aircraft behind us? Because I've told, i got an RA here to climb. And uh, United 1515, the, uh, it's a heavy Airbus uh, 350 off your left-hand side, only 28 left. They're currently at uh, 2,000 feet. Okay, is he, how far behind me is he? He's right off your left lane, maybe uh, 830. All right. Cafe 92 heavy, approach clear is canceled, fly heading 260, climb and maintain 4000. Heading 260, climb and maintain 4000, Cafe 92. Okay, 15, 15, the heaviest breaking out of the approach. United 15, 15. Okay, so um, United 15, 15 landed safely on 28 right, uh, Cafe 892 was vectored around for another approach. Um, so the whole thing was set up. Basically, uh, the uh, Cathay flight didn't turn to the heading that they were assigned initially. Um, they must have rolled out on a on a heading that was not what ATC requested. And you'll remember that they said, "Are are you in the turn?" Or and then he said, "Yeah, we're in the turn." And he said, "Okay, give me a sharp something like a, a terminology he uses like make it a sharp turn." In other mm-hmm. words, you're you're encroaching upon. Yeah. The flight path of these airplanes on the other side. And uh, so as as soon as you – and it used to say – I looked in my um, uh, charts for San Francisco International. It's been a few years since I've flown in there. Uh, I thought it used to say somewhere that uh, in our – maybe it was our company guidance – that if you're cleared for a visual approach, you say you have visual contact with the airplane that's on the other runway at San Francisco. You are required to stay – behind that aircraft you have to you have to so maintain you're not over, you, you can't overtake yeah them he even have said it do yeah. not overtake uh-huh. yeah he didn't read that back um and maybe he didn't quite understand what they are required to do um and uh, one thing I, I did note in looking at the acme company pages is the fact that uh, when we fly into uh san francisco for the 28 left 28 right visual approaches Actually, not even when they're visual approaches. Anytime it says any um, oh, during VMC um, runways two eight left right parallel operations, crews must select TCAS TA only mode when cleared for the approach. What that does with the TCAS is, if you're in TA only, that just gives you traffic alerts for aircraft that are close to you, but it will not give you a resolution advisory. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps these two companies don't have this note. I mean, we said uh, our information says we must select TCAS TA only, I guess, to prevent these kind of situations. Sure, because it sounds like y- you could reasonably expect to be close enough to other traffic on the approach. Right. Um, gosh, I, off the top of my head, I don't know how. The runways are not very far apart. No, so they're not. They're you're not going to have a lot of feet, lateral think. separation. No. And um, so you could be certainly close enough together that you're going to get a resolution uh, yes. advisory. 
And uh, that's not good to have that happening on every no. aircraft that's approaching the airport under these visual conditions. I will say that TCAS, um, the latest versions of the TCAS software have gotten pretty darn good, but this is really pushing these systems when you're this yes. close. Yes. Um, but uh, so again, uh, my company only, you know, Acme and the only one I can speak for does tell us to go to TA only to prevent this kind of a situation. Also in the aeronautical information manual, uh, 4-4-14 item B, uh, quote, a pilot's acceptance of instructions to follow another aircraft or provide visual separation from it is an acknowledgement that the pilot will maneuver the aircraft as necessary to avoid the other aircraft or to maintain in-trail separation. So, um, you know, it's it, I'm not sure that the crew of Cathay knows this or knew it or what was going you know, on there, but it seemed like they were kind of confused about a lot yeah, of Yeah, it didn't things. sound like they were really 100% certain that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. There was a lot of, you know, appropriate questioning, I think, or uh, at least when they were reading back instructions, you could hear some of the uncertainty in yes. their, their voice. And I think it was a, a prudent decision by that controller to cancel the approach clearance and right. have them go back around for another another try at it. I agree. I and you that, could tell United next to them was getting a little concerned about where they yeah. might be trying to, well, you're gonna, to go appropriately. Yeah, so. You can't exactly see this other see airplane. This, yeah, this thing is yelling at you. Yeah, behind me to my side and <laughs> yeah. it's telling me they're right there. Climb, climb. Yeah, where you know, where it's like, is what? this guy? But I'm yeah. on the approach. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, definitely uh, one of those, you know, sucking the cushion. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, so yeah, they, uh, it was resolved finally by air traffic control and said, okay, let's, let's go and try this again. (laughs) Have another whack at it. Uh, so, um, I would say to answer Deanna, yes, I think this was Cathay's fault for not expeditiously executing the turn, the original turn from ATC. Um, and did ATC get them too close? No, because it wasn't ATC's responsibility from that point. As soon as they said, we have, we have a visual, and how dra- dangerous was this? Well, you know, it was getting close to being dangerous. And have I ever gotten a TCAS RA? Yes, I have. Um, a few times. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of times you can kind of see it being, you know, kind of being set up. You know, you'll see somebody mm-hmm. like climbing out at a very high rate, even though you know that they've received a clearance to level off at an altitude that's below where you are. Sometimes it happens going into Atlanta when you're coming in on a downwind and the uh, and like it's cold and, um, uh, the, the performance of the airplanes is pretty high and they're cleared to an altitude, um, let's say 10,000 feet. And we're coming in at, uh, 12 and sometimes they'll even let you down to about 11, um, thousand feet. And they, uh, and, and you, do, you just can tell, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be a challenge for the uh, TCAS system because the TCAS doesn't know what their, you know, what was given to them, what that, that they intend to level off at 10,000 feet. And, um, but we do, you know, but you, so you, you can be kind of, uh, become aware of situations that, or you might be in a situation yourself when you're climbing out at a very high rate, you see another airplane coming in and they're at a certain altitude and you just know this is going to be potentially one of those situations that's going to set the, um, TCAS into the resolution advisory mode. And so in that case, what I'll do, I'll take it out of VNAV and I'll, you know, go to vertical speed to, or just turn everything off and just manually fly the airplane and lower my rate of climb. So I don't set off somebody's TCAS RA. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I wish a lot of, a lot more people would do that, but um, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of like, if you're driving on the highway and someone is trying to merge in and um, the people who don't 
if they have the opportunity to move over or adjust their speed a little bit and they just don't, they just keep driving like right. this is. And you're going. None, none of this is my responsibility. I'm like, you could have made that so much easier for the poor person who's trying to merge into traffic with right. you. It's the same idea. It's like sometimes people just don't look much ahead of them no. like then see things that are kind of yeah look at the whole picture that situational awareness stuff we yeah. talk a lot about it's uh, a lot of people have yeah. nasa na on sa right na on sa i like it not applicable uh or situational awareness yeah, situational Sorry. awareness um you know what i know we're probably over the three hour mark but you know what that's okay because i want one. to yeah. i definitely want to get this next one in um and uh do you want to read this stuff and i'll get the picture I, be happy to, sure. Okay. This is from Alex. It says, dubious friend becomes student pilot. This is Alex from central Oklahoma. A quick update. I have passed my private pilot check ride, and I am finally a certificated private pilot. Woohoo! Yay! Applause. Applause. Baby. Yeah. Do you hear All the applause. Oh, yes. Right lots and lots of applause. Hey. He says, it took just about a year of flying after work and on the weekends, but it was one of the most fulfilling processes in my life. Throughout this process, my best friend of over 20 years, and I am only 35, was very concerned about the safety of general aviation. I assured him that the pilots are very cautious people and we take safety very seriously. He continued to tell me how dangerous flying in, quote, small planes is and even tried to uh, talk my wife into telling me to stop. After I received my certificate, he was my second passenger after my wife. In straight and level flight on a calm day, I let him take the controls and make a couple of gentle turns. Fast forward a few weeks and he's logged roughly five hours with an instructor and is contemplating switching careers to become a professional pilot <laughs> and his Redbird simulator will be delivered to his house in a few days. Wow, he's kind of gone all in there, hasn't yes. he? Yes. <laughs> Funny that, how that works, huh? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. As a side note, uh, my father, now in his 70s, was a multi-engine instrument-rated pilot and was my inspiration to get my certificate. I've attached a picture from sometime in the 80s where he's holding me in front of his plane. I cherish this picture and am excited to say that I will be taking him up for the first time this weekend. We'll be departing from the FBO, which he built and managed in the 70s. Clear skies, Alex. Wow, is that awesome? There's the photo if you're watching the video of... Uh of uh, Alex and being held by his father. And that's so funny. That's I love this story. Photo. That's like, I know this is, these are unsafe, <laughs> like, unsafe. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Takes like one taste of it. And all right, now I got to get an instructor and, um, buy that Redbird simulator. Yeah. That's awesome. And I don't even know how much those cost. That's they really can't uh, be cheap. Those are nice it, simulators. Aren't no, they? they're really nice simulators. <laughs> wow. Very cool. Uh, Thanks for sharing that, Alex. That's yeah. uh, that's a great, great story. Great picture too. That's that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Very eighties there. Yeah, we have lots very. of family photos that look exactly like that, <laughs> yeah. minus wearing the airplane. This, wearing the but same kind of clothing. Yeah, we don't have any airplanes exactly. in ours. <laughs> yeah, but same same clothing for sure. Yeah, same photo quality. Oh, all right. Well, we did it, Steph. We got through. We made it. it. We Liz, made it. Liz is going to be so proud of us. And uh, thank you, everyone, for hanging in there with us on uh, this episode 389, especially those of you in our live chat room, our live audience. Uh, if you want to uh, hang out with us um, and watch the uh, show being recorded live and what a train wreck it can be, um, please. Because <laughs> if you're just listening, this was very smooth, seamless. Yeah. You didn't notice any no glitches. pauses, gaps, glitches, <laughs> technical issues, late starts. Um, if you want to know the truth, just go to the YouTube channel and watch the raw, <laughs> uh, recordings and, um, anywho, um, 
So if you want to be advised uh, when we are recording live and join the uh, the great group of people that always show up, or a lot of them show up every week, um, please follow us on the social meds. And Steph's going to tell you how you can do that. I am. You can head over to twitter.com and search for us using the handle at APG crew. We're all there and you can find our individual Twitter information. If you just want to chat to one of us at the top of that page, um, lots of good one-on-one interaction there, interaction with some of the other community members and folks who are a little more prominent on the social meds themselves. And if Twitter's not your thing, head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guide. You can find all kinds of folks interacting there with us and with each other and sharing news stories, happenings from around the world of aviation and general camaraderie. Um, we also have an Instagram uh, page at airline pilot guide. I think I'm the only one that very occasionally posts stuff there, but I've got some more trips coming up. So um, hopefully I'll have some more pictures to share there for you as well. And if you are more interested in the meetup and event planning side of things, I'm going to turn it over to Hillel to discuss that. Hillel? Yes, Hillel will tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, for managing that, and send him an email or text, and uh, he'll get you set up on Slack. And, and if you don't hear from him for a little bit of time, I know he is out of the country uh, with oh, that's right. somewhat limited access. So he's definitely not in the, not hiding in the bathroom today. No, he's, no. Uh, he's out of town. So he's not yes. with me in the bathroom <laughs> or with himself in the bathroom. Yes. yes. And uh, also a big uh, round of applause and thank you to our producer, Liz and Toronto. Liz. Thank you, Liz. Enjoying her uh, fresh peaches, uh, apparently. And... Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you for all you do, and thank you, listener, for listening to the show, downloading it, reviewing it, and all of that. Uh, You guys are the reason why we do this, and we love you. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time
But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine